Hemlock Knots. Cracking the restoration's toughest subjects through rational, balanced analysis of source material. Hi, everybody. Welcome to debate number two about the question of Joseph Smith's involvement in polygamy tonight. We're going to be covering the angle of did he teach it or did he not? And then we're going to have both sides explain their best arguments for and against that question of whether or not Joseph Smith taught this. So the way it's going to work tonight is first, we're going to have um, the affirmative team, which is made up of Mark Tensmeyer and Jacob Vidreen. Um, they're going to handle that question first of all. And then we've got the negative team tonight's Jeremy Hoop and Leo Ebert. So with that said, we're going to jump right into it with... Um, Section one, you know, argument number one is the Doctrine and Covenants 132 authentic? And we're going to allow, um, let's go, we have Mark and Jacob handle this one first. So, okay, guys, you got 10 minutes. I'm going to start the clock right now. Go right ahead. Okay. How do I share my, my slides? Um, get those going. All right. So the biggest question when it comes down to did Joseph Smith teach polygamy really is, is DNC 132 an authentic revelation or later forgery? Because this is considered to be one of the key documents on this issue. And so it's very clear that Joseph Smith did have some sort of revelation on July 12th, 1843, because it's wrote, written in his journal, Wednesday, July 12th, received a revelation in the office in the presence of Hiram and William Clayton. And William Clayton also wrote in his journal, I wrote a revelation consisting of 10 pages on this order of the priesthood showing the designs of Moses, Abraham, David, and Solomon having many wives and concubines. And so the real question is, what was this revelation? Was it permitting teaching and permitting polygamy in the present or was it against it? And so in my opinion, this really comes down to which should we believe the Nauvoo expositor affidavits on this subject that were that were made in May 1844 and published in the expositor on June 7th, 1844. And so there's three affidavits. There's one by William Law, there's one by Jane Law, and there's one by Austin Cowles that basically allege that, that Hiram Smith had brought them and read a revelation to them and get, you know, relating to plural marriage in this world and in the world to come. And uh, according to William Law, it authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time. It said this was the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law and that he should administer to others. And so I'm comparing it to DNC 132 right there to see some of the similarities. Similarly, Jane Law testified that she said, I read the revelation referred to in the above affidavit of my husband. It sustained in strong terms the doctrine of more wives than one in this world and in the next, authorize some to have the number of 10 and set forth that those women who would not allow their husband to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. And so the key thing is Austin Cowles alleged that this revelation was read to the Nauvoo High Council, he said in his affidavit. He said, in the lighter part of the summer of 1843, the patriarch Harm Smith did in the High Council, which I was a member, introduced what he said was a revelation given through the prophet. The said Harm Smith did essay to read the revelation to the said council. And according to his reading, there were contained the following doctrines. First, the sealing up a person to eternal life against all sins, save the shedding of innocent blood or consenting thereto. Second, the doctrine of a plurality of wives or bearing virgins, and that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sinned not, save in the matter of Uriah. So that sounds like very, very similar to DNC 132 in verses 26 specifically, and also verses 38 and 39. 
So Joseph and Hiram interestingly responded to this and to the expositor affidavits. They didn't say that these statements were invented out of whole cloth, but they said that there was an authentic revelation and read to the high council, but that they were saying that these, the revelation was misunderstood and misinterpreted. Joseph and Hiram's statements appear contradictory on face value. Hiram emphasized that the revelation was about polygamy in former days and not the present. Joseph said the revelation had to do with eternal marriage and also implicitly in eternal polygamy by saying, quote, having a wife on earth while he has one in heaven and according to the keys of the holy priesthood. Significantly, while accusations of immorality and affidavits against the Navi dissenters were made, read, and included in the city council minutes, Joseph and Hiram did not either publish this new revelation or even read it to the Nauvoo City Council, which begs the question, not only was this not published in 1843 when they received it, but they also didn't publish it in June of 1844, which would have been a very easy way to debunk the expositor. And so th these minutes were published in the Nauvoo Neighbor on June 19th, 1844, contemporary in Joseph Smith's lifetime. And so, you know, those are the statements real quick, you know, you know, both statements by Hiram as well as statements by Joseph. So the revelation, oh, that's not the slide. So who was telling the truth? The, is it, you know, so according to the Brighamite testimony from Utah, they, they support what Jane Law, Austin Cowles, and William Law said. William Clayton and Joseph Kingsbury both gave their testimony that DNC 32 was indeed a novel revelation of Joseph Smith that they were scribes for in 1869. Several former Nauvoo High Council members, Thomas Grover, James Allred, and Aaron Johnson, all signed affidavits saying that DNC 132 was indeed read to them and other members of the Nauvoo High Council on or about August 12, 1843. And Hosea Stout, as clerk for the council, also said he was made aware of the revelation, though he didn't personally read it at the time. So, you know, the Brighamites by themselves wouldn't be um, something that would be compelling, in my opinion, if you just have the Brighamites and you just have the apostates contradicting what Joseph and Hiram are alleging in June of 1844. But it's not just the Brighamites. You have uh, contemporary evidence. While the Nauvoo High Council minutes do not directly reference this revelation, we have a reference to it by Frank Franklin D. Richards' journal on August 12, 1843, that Hiram said before the High Council that no prophet ever did transgress, but was directed by the impulse of the Spirit involuntarily. Also, he said that a man should take his brother's wife and raise up seed to him as it was in Israel must be again established. So that's clearly Hiram referencing Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, a place in the law of Moses where plural marriage is commanded. And he said that to the high council. So, and this concern about a prophet possibly transgressing could obviously be referencing people might have reservations about this new controversial revelation. And again, Nauvoo Revelation resident Sarah Scott wrote letters to her parents in June and July 1844, confirming that her brother-in-law, Jesse Haven, had the plural marriage revelation taught to the elders quorum by Hiram Smith. And she is a believing member at that time, but is obviously concerned about this, the new doctrines that are being introduced. So other non-Brighamite testimony include Ebenezer Robinson, who signed affidavits that Hiram taught him plural marriage, but that he, Robinson, personally rejected it. And so he was aware, made aware of DNC 132, and he was aware of it being read to the Kite Council. Um, besides Austin Cowles, both William Marks and Lear Sobe both testified to a revelation on plural marriage being read to the Naivu High Council and the council accepting it. Um, we read it last time where he, in the RLDS church presidency where, where William Marks' testimony was given. Um, John Hawley also gave an account of William Marks telling him about that. But what's more interesting to me is Leonard Sobe because Leonard Sobe didn't join the, um, 
he, he was didn't follow Brigham Young at all. And he was actually a follower of Sidney Rigdon, and he was excommunicated the same time as Sidney Rigdon was on September 8, 1844. So Zenith, the story with Leonard Sobey is that Zenas Gurley Jr., as an RLDS apostle, wanted to get his story, whether he supported, sustained the affidavits being published by Utah or not on DNC 132. And so he goes out and he shows him the affidavit and Leonard Sobey confirmed, yes, that revelation is what I recall Hiram Smith read to the high council. And he's not a member of the LDS church and Zenas Gurley Jr. isn't a member of the LDS church. Um, and so Leonard Sobey gave two affidavits on this. And he said, in one of them, he said, I've read and examined carefully said revelation since published in the book of covenants of said doctrine and covenants of said church and said to the best of my knowledge and belief, it is the same word for word as the revelation then read by Hiram. And so this was damning enough to Zenas Gurley Jr. that he resigned from his apostleship in the RLDS church, but still remained an avid anti-polygamist. So there are other versions of DNC 132 that were made, other copies besides the Kingsbury copy. Horace K. Whitney made a copy in Winter Quarters. There are also shorter versions that were alleged to be seen by William Law, James Whitehead, Mercy Fielding Thompson. Lyman White is alleged to have had a longer version of DNC 132, according to Gideon Carter. Um, I don't have time to get into those too much, but I, what's interesting is William Law, he said, you know, distinctly the original that Hiram gave him was much shorter, but the contents are substantially the same, but there was not the theological introduction. The thing simply consisted in the commanding of doing it, and the command was reserved to the high priest and to virgins and widows. But as to Joseph himself, the Lord's chosen servant, it was restricted to virgins only to clean vessels from which to procure a pure seed to the Lord. And this is obviously a late testimony, but it's interesting. He also recalled Emma saying to him, the revelation says I must submit or be destroyed. Well, I guess I have to submit. And that's referencing verses 52 and 54 of DNC 132. So the last thing I want to get into is the interesting story that Emma and her family privately preserved knowledge that she and Joseph indeed burned the revelation. And this is not just coming from Brigham Young. So this is an article, the Emma Smith Law Reconsidered by Linda King Newell. I find this very fascinating. It several statements. William McClellan recalled that in 1847, Emma told him that Joseph wished her to get up and burn the revelation. She refused to touch it even with tongs. He rose from his bed and pulled open the fire with his fingers and put the revealment in and burned it. Similarly, Joseph III wrote in his diary about visiting with James Lighthead Whitehead had a long conversation, an interesting chat with him. He says he saw the revelation about one page fool's paper in father's handwriting. Clayton copied it and it was this copy that mother burned. And that's quoted by his daughter in a letter to Paul Hansen. And similarly, Samuel Smith's daughter wrote a letter to Don Carlos Smith's daughter. I suppose you've heard that Aunt Emma burned the revelation, which I suppose was so. I have heard my Aunt Lucy say, and so that's Joseph's sister, say that Emma would not touch it with her fingers, but took the tongs to put it in the fire. And so the big question I have to ask is, why are they preserving this tradition that Emma burned the revelation if that was made up by the Brighamites? And second, you know, obviously, in my opinion, this tradition is strong evidence that there was indeed a real revelation on plural marriage. Thanks. Okay, very good. Awesome. Thank you so much. So that was the affirmative team's first position. Um, first question, is the DNC 132 revelation authentic? Now we're going to hear from the negative team who will get 10 minutes as well. And we're going to bring them on. We're going to remove Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Nice job. Um, we're going to bring on Leo and Jeremy on the 
negative team. So we're going to reset the timer to 10 minutes. And <clears throat> as soon as you guys start talking, we'll, we'll hit the timer. Go ahead. Do you see, the, do you see my uh, slides? Okay. Uh, no. You don't. Is this, is this the one? Um, let me try again. Share. I'll get your slides going. Yeah, as soon as you guys are ready, we'll add to the you sure you, Is that the is one? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, hit the slideshow button at the top, and that'll maximize full screen. Okay. Um, or will that block you from seeing? Yeah, I need to see it. Uh, hang on a second. Okay, that's no cool. Worries. We can do that's it like fine. this. All right. Yep. As Excellent. soon as you start talking, we'll start the timer. All right, I'm good. Okay, so yeah, section 132. Thanks, Jacob. You know, first glance, yeah, I get it. It looks like a true smoking gun, right? You've got this revelation advocating polygamy sourced directly to Joseph Smith. You've got these inside sources like William Law, some members of the High Council, and they're saying, hey, we saw this thing, we heard it. They go publish affidavits in the expositor. It's pretty damning, right? But like most evidence on this topic, the full story is filled with nuance, it's filled with contradictions, testimony, and counter testimony. And as always, comes down to one question, who do you believe more? Who do you find more credible? First thing I want to point out to you is Joseph and Hiram did not deny there was a revelation. This is really important. The question around 132 is not whether it's a complete fabrication, it's whether it's a modified revelation. Now, of course, some bristle at this idea that the Brighamites would modify or outright manufacture historical documents, but that's actually not even a question. We know for a fact that they were willing to do that just by looking at the infamous journal entry from Joseph Smith's journal from October 5th, 1843. In this he says that anyone teaching or preaching it, practicing it, should be brought before a church court. And yet you can see this from the manuscript history of the church, the words to be revised. The Brighamites did not like that language, obviously, so they revised it. Here are the revisions. They crossed things out. They added language to make it say the exact opposite of what it originally said. Um, keep in mind, this was written, this original entry was written by Willard Richards, supposedly a polygamy insider. So why would Joseph be telling another secret polygamist that it's wrong to do polygamy and that everyone doing it needs to be held to account and taken to church court? Makes no sense. This entry was also after 132 was supposedly received. So what would be the point of writing this down if Joseph is running a secret polygamy ring that includes the guy who he told to write it down in a private journal? Now, rather than forbidding polygamy, the Brighamites changed the entry to now sanction it. This is far from the only example of Brighamites changing historical documents. So my question to you guys is, if the Brighamites would change Joseph's journal on this very topic, no less, why wouldn't they tweak a revelation in the same way? And the answer is that, of course, they would. But how do we know if they actually did? Most people don't realize this, but Hiram spoke about the revelation publicly in April 1844. That's probably that letter you mentioned. I can't remember the, the woman's name, Rebecca, maybe, that said Hiram spoke to the elders. This was an address to the elders, okay? He spoke about 90 minutes before the Nauvoo Expositor comes out. Spoiler alert, he says polygamy is no bueno, all right? Here are his words. Any man who comes in and tells any such damn fool doctrine to None but a fool teaches such stuff. The devil himself is not such a fool. Every elder who teaches such stuff ought to have his nose wrung. His name will be published, and if found guilty, his license shall be taken. It's lawful for, for a man to marry a wife, but it is unlawful to have more. And God has not commanded anyone to have more. If any of you dare to presume to do any such thing, it will spoil your fun, for you will never <clears throat> preach the gospel. 
I despise a man who teaches a pack of stuff that will disgrace himself so. For a man to go into the world and talk of this spiritual wife system, a man is as empty as an open sepulcher. I would call the devil my brother before such a man. Now, on Jacob and Mark's side, people like to claim that Joseph and Hiram used carefully worded denials, but there is nothing careful here. There's no parsing of words. There's no way you can read that and think he's leaving room for polygamy. He is either lying through his teeth in an absolutely stunning display of hypocrisy, or he's telling the truth. There is no middle ground. But he's not done yet. He continues, I warn all of you not to attempt it. If a man should begin to find out, you would get into some cell in Alton. Get the wife that God in your country lets you have. If any brother hears any per, uh, person preach this stuff, ring his nose. No man would have more than one wife or they would beat him. If I was a woman and got so fooled, I would hide my head. I give the sisters leave to wring his nose who teach such stuff. I'm not sure he could be any clearer about what he's saying here. There's zero tolerance for polygamy. No one gets more than one wife. So what was the revelation actually about if it wasn't about sanctioning polygamy like 132 claims? According to Hiram, it had to do with the idea of, of marrying for eternity. No one is married after death without a covenant. Hiram goes on to explain in this same talk that since his first wife had died, he approached Joseph about it concerned that he would not be married to her in eternity. Joseph gets a revelation and says his second wife could stand in as proxy in a ceremony to marry Hiram to his dead wife. As far as Joseph and Hiram are concerned, the marriage revelation is about making marriage last after death and actually explicitly forbids having multiple wives. Let me remind you what Hiram says in that talk. He says it is lawful for a man to marry a wife, but God has not commanded anyone to have more, and I would call the devil my brother before such a man. Now, at least you know the contents of the revelation were disclosed publicly before the expositor came out. I think that's a very important fact because it shows an effort by Joseph and Hiram to get the truth out there to combat the rumors. And Jacob points out they didn't read it to the city council. They did read it to the high council. And think about it. If they're supposedly running a secret polygamy ring based on a hidden revelation that only select insiders know about, why would they go to the high council and read it unless they were absolutely sure that everyone else was on board? They're either really stupid, careless, or the revelation they read is what Hiram said it was, and they hoped that by reading it, they could stop the rumor mill. Otherwise, it makes no sense to go to the high council with it. Um, Jacob used these same quotes, but I don't think they say what he says they say. I think they show, they point out that the talk, that the revelation does mention polygamy and that it was wrong. Um, they, they're also a little bit befuddled because they say they make it a criminality for a man to have a wife on the earth while he was has one in heaven. That tracks exactly with what Hiram said publicly about the revelation, getting sealed to a dead spouse while being able to remarry while you're still alive, which consequently is exactly what the original section 101 of the DNC said. So we glean from what they're saying, revelation does address polygamy, but just like we see in the, in the Book of Mormon, it's saying this happened in former days, it's not good, and you shouldn't do it. All right, so if what they're saying is true, we must then ask, why would the laws and some members of the high council turn around and claim they're read a revelation advocating polygamy? That's a fair question. First answer is some people interpreted this idea, this one here that Joseph says, of being married to a wife on the earth while you have one in heaven as polygamy or spiritual wifery. Now, technically, you would have two wives in that moment. It's just that one of them is dead, right? Doesn't mean there's polygamy in heaven. It just means someone could be sealed to a spouse who is dead while being married to someone while they're still alive. That's why Joseph makes this statement. 
Why are they making this a criminality to be married to someone in heaven and on earth? He seems flabbergasted by it. Remember, Hiram was sealed to his dead wife. She would be a spirit at the time, right? So we can see how someone might say, yeah, they taught this spiritual wifeism. They taught you can marry a spirit, even though they might be referring to this idea alone when today we look back on their words or a letter, for example, and assume they're referring to Joseph literally marrying 30 mortal women. But those are two very, very different things. And also remember, there was a very real effort to pin polygamy on Joseph Smith. Now, you can say conspiracy theory all you want, but sometimes conspiracies actually do happen. And in this case, we have proof. This comes from Francis Higby in the Times and Seasons from 1842. He says, I have been solicited both by letter and in person to come out with such a lingo as Bennett. And others have done and attempted in days gone by. My assistance has loudly been called for in such a scheme or adventure. And in one instance, uh, since I left home, I had what some might consider a great offer or proposition made me if I would assist in the management and bringing into existence a newly modeled concern against the church. That is a corrected and revised story fresh from the mint. So if Francis is telling the truth, he's telling that, the, that there were people actively gunning for Joseph. And the way they saw to bring him down was by making polygamy stick in one form or another. They're saying, hey, just make up any story. Do what Bennett did. It just has to be about polygamy. All right, so what about 132 then? Again, the question is not, was there a revelation? The question is, did it say? Or said another way, was it tampered with from its original state? There is evidence. Jacob actually provided a fair amount of it. William Law says the original revelation he saw was much shorter. Only a couple pages of, of couple pages of full scap. Only a few pages, two pages, one to two. Oddly enough, Kingsbury himself, the guy who wrote it down, claims he only wrote one to two pages of full scap paper. Why is that significant? Because it takes up eight pages. And Jacob also makes a great point. There are multiple versions of this revelation floating around. Why would that be the case if it wasn't modified? So not two pages, eight pages. Why do we have multiple witnesses saying that? Uh, well, James Whitehead explains it. He says, Newell K. Whitney showed me revelation on the question of sealing before the exodus to Salt Lake, but after um, Joseph's dead, and it was not the same one that came out in the DNC. It was so changed that it sanctioned polygamy. That change was made by the Brighamites. Whitehead's words speak for themselves, and the Brighamites' willingness to modify historical documents to fit their narrative also speaks for itself. Uh, you're on mute, Mark. Oh, I said, yeah, both sides have now had a chance, 10 minutes to present their arguments on both sides of this question. Is the DNC 132 section revelation authentic? Now we're going to hear rebuttals from each team. So um, we had the affirmative team go first, and then the negative team just spoke. So now we're going to bring the affirmative team back on, and they will be addressing the points made by Leo just now. So let me bring Mark Tensmeyer and Jacob Vidrine back on the screen. Do you guys have anything to share or just want your, your images, your, your pictures on there for your face? Oh, I don't have anything to share. Do you, Jacob? Um, not, not really. Okay. okay, we're gonna give the rebuttals. Each team gets a chance to rebut their, the arguments of the other. So we're gonna give five minutes on the clock and as soon as you guys start, we'll start the timer. Thanks guys. All right. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I think the first thing is about modification of documents. There's a big, big difference between um, modifying something for a documentary history and actually going back and changing a document itself. And um, we have Joseph Kingsbury's uh, we have Joseph Kingsbury's contemporary document. And uh, I think more on that, I, I don't think it's plausible that someone like William Marks would have misunderstood what the revelation was about, that he would have thought that it was a benign thing. When he gives his account uh, a couple of, to, to um, the RLDS presidency and to the, uh, and to, um, who is it, Holly, John Holly, he, he makes it sound like it was not a benign thing, that it that it was about polygamy. Leonard Sobey says that it, as far as he could tell, it was the exact same document. And Austin Coles, who who, uh, who gave the affidavit to the expositor, he was a man of good reputation. He remained a faithful believer in the restoration the rest of his life. In fact, Joseph Smith III uh, published uh, his um, obituary so that he was a man that never wavered in his faith. He was a person that praised him for standing up to polygamy. And so that that many people would misunderstand the content of it, I don't find that to be very plausible. Now, um, let's see what else do they talk about, uh, about different versions of it. There is precedent for there being different versions of it, of a revelation. Uh, one example of that is um, Doctrine and Covenants section 20, which is the Articles and Covenants of the Church. Uh, there's the earliest draft that was the Oliver Cowdery version of it. And then there's the version that was uh, put into the canon. And the version that the Oliver Cowdery version of it was one that people still carried around. Uh, that's the one. That's why we have it. Is we have we have a copy of it that was handed down by a missionary, and that was being given out to branches even after the canonized first part was put out. Um, another another uh, example of that is Section One O Seven, which is uh, an amalgamation of a few different revelations. Uh, one that was given is in 1831, and then it was added to with the different things on it. So there's precedent for that. Uh, let's see, Jacob, anything you wanted to comment on some of those things? So with James Whitehead's Temple Lock case, oh, James Whitehead, they actually, yeah. yeah, they actually brought him a copy of DNC 132. That's and right. they're, this like, is okay, he said, they're like, what was modified on this? And he couldn't tell them what was modified. He basically had to admit that what he saw was a totally different revelation. And yeah. <laughs> He was quite certain that this was a July 1842 revelation that was one or two pages. Yeah. And it seems to fit like a hand in a glove with the Sarah Ann Whitney revelation. And who's the one he says showed it to him in winter quarters? Newell K. Whitney. Yeah. So Whitehead, instead of um, debunking DNC 132, Whitehead confirms that there was uh, early provenance for the July 27th, 1842 revelation for Sarah Ann Whitney to marry Joseph Smith. So that's my comment on Whitehead. With oh, yeah. William Law, he, he's, he's clearly familiar with the contents and he's saying the contents had to deal with plural marriage and Joseph marrying virgins. And as I point out in my slide, he's matching up with DNC 132 in those later parts that are very explicit about the command to practice plural marriage, as did um, you know, his wife as Jane Law. And so if he was only given a couple pages, he said two or three pages is what he remembered. And this is, like I said, decades later, reminiscence. He's saying, so if he was only shown two or three pages, maybe they only did let him have half of That's the revelation. Right, yeah. That's uh, 
you know, an important possibility. But the reason we know this wasn't a Utah forgery is because we have the Horace K. Whitney copy that was made in March of 1847 in Winter's Quarters. And he wrote in his journal, I was spent the day copying an important document for church leaders. And that was when the um, that was when the Kingsbury copy was being turned over to Brigham Young. And so Newell K. Whitney had his own private collection of revelations and he wanted to maintain a copy of this revelation. And so he had his oldest son, Horace K. Whitney, make that copy. And that is identical to the Joseph Kingsbury copy. And if they were into fabricating documents, they should have just had William Clayton or Willard Richards fabricate it. It doesn't make sense to use uh, almost, you know, uh, just a random Nauvoo scribe when they had both William Clayton and Willard Richards to possibly make a forged copy. And we actually do have a Willard Richards copy of DNC 132 also. It's based off of the Kingsbury manuscript. He gets some words wrong and we don't know when it's dated. You know, it could have been written anytime from Nauvoo up until his death in the early 1850s. So, but we don't know the provenance of the Willard Richards version. And so the Kingsbury copy is the one that we emphasize. So, and that's what the Joseph Smith Papers prioritizes as well. Okay, awesome, thanks guys. That was the affirmative team's rebuttal to the question of is DNC 132 authentic? Now for the last portion of this, we're gonna bring back on um, the negative team, which is Jeremy Hoop and Leo Ebert. We're gonna bring you guys back on. And we will change the little slide here. So this is the last five-minute section on this question, and this is the negative team's rebuttal to what the affirmative team presented earlier. We'll start the timer as soon as you guys uh, start presenting. All right, thanks. Yeah, so no, I, I get it. Like, the, but there's this question of are there are there multiple versions of this revelation? And a lot. Of, what I think you guys are missing is a lot of the evidence you're presenting says that there were multiple versions of a revelation, different forms, different lengths. Um, you know, Brigham Young himself. He claims that when he's in England on a mission, he claims he gets this vision and revelation about polygamy that God reveals to him. You know, how do you know he didn't write this in England, sit on it, and then he, like, you know, this is what people are copying down the line in 1847 or whenever at Winter Quarters. Um, you know, Kingsbury, the fact that so many people remember it being shorter and then it ends up four times longer is extremely strange, right? Um, Kingsbury's writing of it, his copy of it is pristine. It is error free. Okay. It's eight pages of full scap and there's not a mistake, not a cross out anywhere on it. Supposedly the story is from Kingsbury himself. He says he wrote it somewhere between 30 to 60 minutes and the Hiram's like right outside the door waiting to get the revelation back. Right? So quite a miracle. This guy could copy over eight pages of pristine writing with not a single mistake, not a single cross out. Um, and then have it preserved all these years later, right? In, in 30 to 60 minutes. Um, probably one of the biggest things, and this is probably somewhat a more theological issue, but, and obviously if you don't believe in Mormonism at all, this wouldn't matter, but there's a blatant contradiction between um, the Book of Mormon and DNC 132. Um, DNC 132 says that, uh, you know, David and Solomon had all these wives and that was totally cool with God, except the fact that they, you know, killed Uriah. Whereas Jacob too says very simply, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Doesn't say anything about Uriah. It says this was a problem, an issue. Now, maybe Joseph Smith got it wrong. Maybe he did get this revelation and it was just a mistake. But if you believe in Mormonism, believe that, more, that the Book of Mormon is legitimate, that's a real problem. The fact that 132 uh, 
contradicts it so so explicitly. Um, Jeremy, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I would say um, that there's also there's also real problems with Clayton's story. The whole reason that Clayton uh, gives for the revelation coming forward is that he says Hiram goes to Joseph and says, Hiram, uh, Joseph, please, please, we, I need you to write this down because if you write it down, I can convince Emma that it's true. And I can convince any man of the, of the truthfulness of the, this revelation. By the way, this, the way people paint Hiram in his language is so diametrically opposed to the actual recorded events that Hiram says. But the problem with that narrative is Emma had already married four women, supposedly, according to the stories, already married four women to Joseph Smith prior to, uh, eight, to, to um, the, the revelation coming out. So why would he need to go and convince Emma of something she was already doing? And according to Emily Partridge, she was already explaining the principles to us while she was performing the ceremony. That doesn't make any sense. It's not consistent whatsoever. I should point out about Kingsbury, the man would not swear to tell the whole truth. He would not swear an oath to tell the whole truth in his testimony in the Temple Lot case. When, when asked, um, why, why are you afraid to swear uh, an oath? Why, why do you just affirm? Uh, is it because you're afraid that you might be convicted of perjury? And he says, well, I, I presume that that might be the case. He, <clears throat> the man uh, waffled in his testimony. His testimony doesn't make any sense. He said it was two to three pages, took maybe 30 minutes to copy down. Um, in terms of uh, the, the revelation that Whitehead see, saw, I'm going to address that more clearly, but uh, he clearly was not referencing the Sarah and Whitney um, supposed marriage revelation. And by the way, section 132 is not contemporaneous. There is no evidence. The, the document wasn't produced until about the 19, uh, the 1880s. And Wilfred Woodruff himself said he didn't even know if he'd ever seen a copy of it in 1892. Right. Never seen it. Uh, to say that those are contemporaneous is just flat out untrue. Um, the 18, stuff in 1847 to, to, to buttress what Leo's saying, What's co what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Brigham said that he received a revelation on plural marriage by himself before Joseph ever says a word in, in England in the 18, 1839, 1840. So right. Brigham has this revelation prior to this. Is it possible, with all this stuff being noised around, without Joseph and Hiram ever saying a word, that the that the substance of what would later become 132 was already being talked about in Austin Cowles and William Law, who hated Joseph Smith to the point of wanting to kill him? They started their own church. They wanted to kill Joseph Smith. There was a plot by the Laws, Fosters, and Higbees, and by Josh Jackson, and Austin Cowles is in league with them. They want to kill the man. So how do we take their word for it? Second, is that it? Okay. Awesome. So that concludes the first section, which is the question of is DNC 132 authentic? Both sides presented uh, lots of case material on that. We're going to move on to the second argument of the night. And for this segment, we're going to keep the negative team on. They're going to they're going to kick off the second portion because the affirmative team went first on the first one, first question. So um, the second part, we're examining the question of William Clayton as a reliable source. Was he a reliable source? So negative team, you guys ready? Yes. You have visuals and stuff all lined up? Yep. Tell me if you can see my screen. Go ahead and bring it on in. Let's see. Let's share. Yeah. I just did it. There we go. Can you see that? Let's see. Is this the one? Yep, that's the one. Okay, as soon as you start, we'll do... So this is going to be a 10-minute segment, just like in the first part. 
10 minutes for the negative side and then followed by 10 minutes for the affirmative side to answer the exact same question. And Jeremy, as soon as you start chatting away, we'll start the timer. Okay. Is Clayton a, a reliable source? Of, of course, we don't believe so. Uh, according to Clayton's own uh, words in 1874 in his affidavit, he says that he was given care of all the records, papers, books, etc., by Joseph and Joseph saying, when I have any revelations to write, you're going to be the one to write them. Well, we have, unfortunately, for the other side, we have James Whitehead's testimony. By the way, I recommend anyone read James Whitehead's testimony because it's extraordinarily clear. It's not like it's been characterized here today. He basically says Willard Richards kept the history. William Clayton was kicked out of writing the history and, and anything of being a personal secretary over something to do with money and that it was James Whitehead's position to be Joseph's personal secretary, keeping not only his personal papers, but his journals and his letter books. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and Whitehead's testimony is corroborated by the fact that Clayton mostly did uh, the record of temple fund contributions in the book of the law of the Lord, and he did not write any other revelations except the purported revelation, AKA 132, if that's a valid revelation. <clears throat> in Clayton's Nauvoo Journal. Let's address this. We're debating uh, something that no one outside of two people has ever laid eyes on, except Andy E. Hatton, one other historian, the, the name eludes me. Michael Quinn apparently only made his remarks based on seeing 25, the 25% typescript of the other historian. Only 25% of Clayton's journal has ever been released. The LDS Church has the original journal, but won't release it. And why not? Why, why uh, is it not front and center on the JSP website? They have it. They said they were going to release it years ago, but they haven't yet. If you don't release something that could clear up misconceptions, that uh, is a little fishy and frankly works against your credibility. There are multiple books spanning the same time periods. Why? Clayton wrote in two basic journals, and the second journal is made up of three different books. Journal two, that is, covers mostly the, the, the time period regarding the plural marriage revelations, conveniently is almost confined to those revelations from uh, 27 November 1842 to 30 1846. It's in three separate notebooks. And the first notebook goes until eight, April 27, 1843, and then switches over to another notebook. The record then goes um, in that notebook until September 24, 1844, three months after Joseph's murder, at which point Clayton switches back to the first. I think there's a much easier explanation. The second notebook is a later rewrite and the Brighamites demonstrated a pattern of doing this and I'll cover that in a minute. Until the LDS church releases the full, I think we can be highly suspicious about that, that journal being a contemporaneous record. Clayton was highly at odds with Emma and Hiram. I'm gonna have to skip over a lot of these references. Um, I'm just gonna make vague reference to some of these because more points are, are important. His English or his England mission journal is very strange and it casts a shadow on his character, frankly. In his England mission journal, he was in love with a girl named Sarah Crooks, who's not his wife. He mentions her over 80 times by name. He doesn't mention his wife by name, except to say that she's struggling. He mentions her about 20 times in the journal and uh, dismissively. He spends exorbitant time alone with this woman named Sarah. He expresses his affection and fondness for her explicitly, quote, I don't want Sarah to be married. I was much troubled and tempted on her account and felt to pray that the Lord would preserve me from impure affections. Uh, she gave me an orange. I certainly feel my love towards her increase, but shall strive against it. I feel too much to covet her and afraid lest her trouble shall cause her to get married. The Lord keep me pure and preserve me from wrongdoing. He also spends time alone with Sarah and other women. And then we have this strange uh, event 
of feet washing. He starts spending alone at, uh, at night with her and she washes his feet and <clears throat> uh, they're drinking alcohol and they're alone um, at, at home together. And there are nine instances of this over a period of, um, it looks like about a month and a half where he's spending time alone performing uh, a sacred ceremony that uh, uh, coincidentally has reference or has some similarity to uh, a Cochranite practice of foot washing before intercourse. And also in his journals, we see these strange redactions. Someone crossed out a whole bunch of pages, uh, lines in his journals. What they crossed out, we'll never know apparently, unless of course we can see the originals and see if we can somehow see behind those lines. Now also, what about Heber? His, the man who baptized him and mentored him at the very same time on January 21st, 1840, wrote this in his journal. Very unwell with a bad cold, wrote one letter to Susanna. Sister Ellen came in the evening. She finished the letter to my wife. She stayed with me through the evening. Elder W. went and preached at, that's Woodruff, went and preached after meeting Dr. Copeland and his wife, and others came in to see me. Sister Ellen combed my head. We washed our feet and went to bed. That we washed our feet and went to bed, as you can see, has been scratched out, but you can clearly see what it says. Now, if that had been the journal of Joseph Smith, I think Mark and Jacob would say, see, there's proof that Joseph was having sex with the women. These men were doing something very strange. That's not direct proof they're having sex, but it is really, really sketchy. Clayton is a product of Brighamite culture. Brigham Young changed every fundamental doctrine that Joseph revealed. He changed the very nature of God to the Adam-God theory. He introduced racism into, the, racism into the church with his teachings on blacks and the priesthood. He introduced a culture of violence with blood atonement and, of course, with polygamy, because Joseph never taught that. He changed the structure of the church and the nature of the succession of the president. He consolidated power in the first presidency. Brigham said that he received his revelations, as I mentioned, before Joseph ever said a word. He said that he received that in England in 1839 or 1840. He said he received it by vision in the spirit. Lorenzo Snow, by the way, also said the same thing. And it was revealed to him in England before Joseph ever said a word. And coincidentally, Emily Partridge also wrote and testified that she learned about the principle before Joseph ever told her. Uh, Brighamite culture was a culture of extraordinary violence in Nauvoo and in Utah. We all know about Mountain, Mountain Meadows. The Brighamite people embraced the principle of lying for the Lord. Imagine... If you were a people who believed that there was no sin you could commit, save uh, uh, the sin against the Holy Ghost and the shedding of innocent blood that would derail your exaltation, what then is acceptable to do to promote the most righteous principle on earth or the principle of the plurality of, uh, of wives as they believe? The Brighamites followed the pattern set up by Samson of Ar, John Bennett, Chauncey Higby, and others to blame Joseph for what they were doing. Brigham and his followers didn't even obey the revelation they said was the foundation of their wives, of their, of their, um, of their faith. Brigham Young's first two wives were married to other men. His second plural wife, Augusta Adams Cobb, likely a former Cochranite, was sued by her husband, Henry Cobb, in 1846 and 47 for divorce on the grounds of adultery, and Henry won. The judge determined Augusta was committing adultery with Brigham. Brigham married Zina Huntington Jacobs, February 2nd, 1846, in the presence of her husband, Henry. Zina was eight months pregnant with Henry's baby. Zina continued to cohabitate with Henry while also being married to Brigham until 1847. And Henry, uh, Zina would have a child with Brigham in 1850. Henry wrote for her, her for many years, expressing his continued love for her, wishing they could be together again. You should read what Richard Ben Wagner said on the subject. It's really heartbreaking. 
in Brigham Young's 1866 General Conference taught, he taught in openly in General Conference, if a man, if a woman can find a man holding the keys of the priesthood with higher power and authority than her husband, and he's disposed to take her, he can do so. Otherwise, she's got to remain where she is. This is the second way in which a woman can leave her husband to whom she's been sealed for time and eternity without a bill of divorcement. I ask anyone, is that uh, a righteous principle? <clears throat> Whitehead's testimony of going to winter quarters. One of the reasons he left the church or the whole reason he left the church was because in winter quarters, he witnessed so much wickedness, corruption, uh, drinking, carousing, whoring and abominations that it caused him to believe the church was an apostasy. And he left it because of that. By the way, John D. Lee testified that in 1845 or he wrote, sorry, later in his life, that some have mutually agreed to exchange wives. This is in 1845, and Brigham Young's, one of his brothers, was Lorenzo Young was among them. <clears throat> the last thing I'll say is cooking the books. This is not even in doubt. The Brighamites, this, they weren't revising things for a history. They were changing the meaning of the original text. And there's just too much to go over. But William Smith says that Brigham Young took control of the papers. We have tons of references to Brigham revising the history of Joseph Smith. By the way, um, Willard Richards kept Joseph's journals, but really they were a history. James, um, they're written in third person. There's nearly 700 pages, uh, blank, pa uh, blank pages left in lines and spaces throughout. They have these strange anomalous things where they just leave these giant spaces. Who does that in a journal? Who adds extra things to the journal that are not written in the hand of the recorder? Things like marriage marriage uh, um, lists, etc. cetera. Um, these journals, uh, there's one on July 12th, the day of the revelation, uh, with a big space left after. These journals, I don't believe, are contemporaneous. I believe they were an after-the-fact recording by Richards to then create a history from. Um, Clayton did this as well, by the way. He would leave blank spaces between his copies of other things like the Mason Minute Books and Elder Kimball's journals. And I think that that is my time. Okay. <clears throat> Very good. We're going to bring... Um, so we're now going to let the negative team... I'm sorry, the affirmative team answer the exact same question. Is William Clayton a reliable source? Now give me a moment to bring back Jacob. Let's get Jeremy off. Good job to everybody so far. Okay, so we're answering the question now from the affirmative side. Is William Clayton a reliable source? Now we need to get rid of Jeremy Hoops visuals. Um, is anybody sharing visuals on this segment? I, I have slides on deck. Okay, you ready to go uh, then? Oh, Jacob. Yep. Okay, go ahead and start whenever you're ready. We'll do 10 minutes for you guys. All right, how do I pull up the slides? All right, there we go. So with William Clayton's journals, it's an authentic novel record or a polygamist forgery. So just to address some of the claims about William Clayton. So Laura Thatcher Ulrich in A House Full of Females talks about two blanked out portions of his diaries, 16 lines of a conversation with the prophetess, Catherine Bates. And Ulrich assumes from a later comment Clayton wrote about her prophecies bad meant that he must have decided her prophecies were false and so blacked them out. Another portion she mentions is an entry about Sarah Crooks in England who Clayton had a crush on her and wrote a long entry about. She appeared rather tempted to get married. I feel sorry on this account. I don't want Sarah, Sarah to be married. I, and, and he goes on and he says, I feel much to cover her and, and afraid lest her trouble should cause her to get married. The Lord keep me pure, pure and preserve me from doing wrong. And so, you know, he obviously has a crush and that is 
something that I would think the LDS church would be seeing today if there was having married men going on missions. It's obviously not appropriate, but that's something that was a concern. Benjamin Johnson wrote, you know, a, a strong caution he received from Heber C. Kimball about going on a mission. And he says, you know, you need a lot of men fall into temptation on these things. And so you need to you know, you know, watch yourself on your mission. And Brigham Young would say similar things that, you know, that's the biggest shame. And so um, just to mention the blacked out portions, there are portions exist. We don't know exactly what's blacked out, but, you know, Ulrich assumed one of it was because, you know, Clayton wrote down some prophecies that ended up deciding that they weren't legitimate. So um, William Clayton does jump around between several, oh, wait, let's see. Um. All right. Oh, let's see. I'm not seeing all my slide. Let's see. Um, good thing I, I have it right here. So, um, so Joseph, so blacked out portions of the 1840s exist, but certain authors misrepresent where those blacked out portions occur. And some of it does have, you know, and, and, you know, we aren't, you know, some of it might be innocuous. Others might, you know, we, we don't really know about these different entries. Obviously it was inappropriate, but, um, it doesn't mean there was sin. In the context, Joseph Fielding wrote in his journal that many of the elder, elders in England are being guilty of being too familiar with the sisters and that there was some sort of companionship revelation floating around. But the 12, particularly Parley P. Pratt, had, were trying to put it down. And Joseph Fielding admitted that even he bore some guilt in being too familiar with the sisters, but that he didn't commit serious transgressions as some elders did. And so with William Clayton from his journal, obviously he had a crush on her. They were doing foot washings. Foot washing is not a unique cockroachite practice. That is a New Testament practice. You know, if you have problems with women, strange, you know, strange women washing men's feet, you're going to have a problem. You're, you're like, you know, just like the Pharisees thought, you know, Jesus was inappropriate having the sinner woman um, wash his feet in the New Testament. Paul himself in 1 Timothy 5.10 said that for a woman to qualify to be on the roles of, uh, um, to receive support from the church, has um, she um, washed the feet of the saints is one of the things that was referenced. So that's a Christian practice that goes way beyond Cochranites. And while the Cochranites did foot washings, there's no evidence that foot washing and sex were a connected ritual. So William Clayton does jump around between several different journals in the Nauvoo period, but he was the prophet scribe. He was keeping constant, you know, he's doing all sorts of things. He was traveling with the prophet. He was involved with business matters. You know, ob obviously he was involved with quite a lot of different things. And so he might've kept different um, notebooks at different places. And that would make sense. You know, sometimes when I'm journaling, I might do some journals in a physical journal. I might do journals on my laptop, you know, and that's a decent analogy for maybe Clayton kept different journals in different places. I would say James Whitehead has some serious problems with credibility and what he says about Clayton being fired as Joseph's secretary, because that simply isn't true. Clayton continues to be involved with documents in 1843, 1844. And there's documents not just in the Joseph Smith papers, but even on file in the um, in in the Hancock County, Illinois court that you know Clayton was acting as Joseph scribe for many things. And so the LDS church keeping the Clayton journals private doesn't mean they are of doubtable providence. The much more likely explanation is that the journals are extremely private records that detail intimate details about Joseph's family life and, and conflicts, as well as William Clayton's own personal family life and conflicts he dealt with. And so there's other plausible reasons. And the Joseph Smith Papers is going to publish them. It's list, They announced it several years ago. After they're done with the JSP volumes, they're going to publish the Clayton journals. And a lot of historians are very excited for that. 
So reasons I accept the William Clayton's journal as authentic. They're important evidence in pl for plural marriage in Nauvoo, but the material included in them isn't flattering or designed to promote Brigham Young or the Apostles or Utah Mormonism. It isn't a curated document. I've seen people compare it to possibly um, the George Lobb journal where he went back and wrote a, a nice, beautiful copy of his journal where he added different details to it and turned it into the church historian's office as a history. But William Clayton's journal does not fit with, with Utah Mormonism, as we'll talk in later in later detail. He talks about um, negative things about the apostles, including negative comments Joseph Smith made about Brigham Young in that plural marriage journal. So, you know, it, it's genuine. It supports it being genuine, in my opinion. And Clayton's writings during the succession crisis do not detail someone who did not see the apostles as Joseph Smith's intended successor. He's not, not indicating loyalty to them, but he's rather becomes convinced that they're the right ones to lead church gradually because they are the ones who intended to preserve Joseph's secret teachings, such as temple rituals and plural marriage. So just the document on the JSP, I think is interesting. Joseph Smith called William Clayton his best friend. And a note on October 7th, 1842, just a brief note. Well, you know, Joseph is dealing with people trying to arrest him. He calls Clayton his Jonathan and signs him as David. He compared their love, their friendship to David and Jonathan, and he calls him his best friend. So I think that's significant. And just to show that Brigham Clayton wasn't a Brigham Young stooge. In 1874, he wrote about Brigham Young's revelatory push to begin to do United Orders in early Utah. He says, I cannot write in reference to that and many other subjects with the confidence and enthusiasm which many indulge in. I never oppose any measure by the authorities for that. I nor any other member of the church can be justified. And he goes on to say, my course in regards to the new order has been the same as it was when the principle of adoption was started in Nauvoo and when the Reformation was started in 1857. I wait and watch and say little. I will not oppose my brethren in any Thing. So he's faithful, but he's also admitting that he's skeptical of some of the new things that, say, Brigham Young might introduce. So one of the big things that points out that this plural marriage journal is authentic is he traced a kinderhook plate right in the journal when those came to Nauvoo in the summer of 1843. And this is, uh, and right on the page right next to it, there is a reference to a plural marriage that Clayton performed to jo for Joseph Smith. But unless you are aware of it, you know, what his abbreviated letters stand for, you will miss it. Where's the plural marriage reference? Right there. It's not even a half a line. It's only half a line at 10 MJ to LW. Clayton would say that that was saying married Joseph to Lucy Walker. If he was writing a Utah era curated document, he would have just wrote, I married Joseph to Lucy Walker. Why is he using code? If, you know, obviously because it is a secret thing, it's a Nabu secret practice and they don't want to get caught with it. So William Clayton recorded one of the few contemporary comments about Brigham Young by Joseph Smith in a comment about plural marriage. This is on June 23rd, 1843. This AM, President Joseph took me and conversed considerably concerning some delicate matters. Said Emma wanted to lay a snare for me, probably, and he's told me last night of this and said he, she, he had felt troubled. He said Emma had treated him coldly and badly since he came. And he knew she was disposed to revenge on him from some things. He goes on to say... Um, he cautioned me very kindly for which I felt thankful. He said, Robert Thompson professed great friendship for him, but he gave way to temptation and he had to die. Also brother Newell Knight, he gave him, him one. So i.e., a plural wife, but he went to loose conduct and he could not save him. So Newell Knight also died in 1842. Also B.Y. Brigham Young 
had transgressed his covenant and he pled with the Lord to spare him this end. And he did so. Otherwise he would have died. B, Brigham denied having transgressed. He said, if I would do right by him and abide his counsel, he would save my life while he lived. I felt desirous to do right and would rather die than lose my interest in the celestial kingdom. If you read the Clayton journals at face value, he is, uh, it's a fascinating Nauvoo record. And if it was a Utah curated, he would have included something about Emma temporarily supporting plural marriage, but he doesn't. It's always Emma is opposed to it. And there's nothing in the journal to support it. He has an entry about Emma saying she would have given the Partridge sisters to Joseph, but he, but clearly that did not happen. Um, and Joseph said, if he would have accepted, she would have pitched a fit and, a fit and obtained a divorce. So another thing is William Clayton's journals regarding the succession crisis are key because it shows that he's not blindly loyal to the apostles, but he actually writes some negative things about the apostles in July of 1844. It's very fascinating. Um, he talks about how Samuel Smith or William Marks is the intended successor. It's only later he's talking to other people and they agree that, you know, that those people would not, that William Marks wouldn't be a good successor. Thank you. Okay, very good. Um, that's great. Let me find out where we were. Okay, so that was um, each side had a chance to present for 10 minutes on the question, is William Clayton a reliable source? And now we're going to move into five-minute rebuttals from each team um, because the negative team went first. Uh, we're going to do the negative team again on a rebuttal. Um, for what was just presented, and then the affirmative team will go again. So let me swap out some people real quick. Jeremy, welcome back. Leo. Okay, guys, whenever you guys start presenting, we'll set the timer for five minutes, and we'll wait for you. All right, thanks, guys. Um, so, yeah, I think one one point I think we really need to stress here um, Jacob and Mark are putting a lot of stock in a historical document they have never, ever laid eyes on. You have no idea what's in this journal. You, you, you know of possibly 25%. You don't know what the other 75% says. Maybe someday it comes out and we have a different conversation about it. I'll work backwards on some of these points you mentioned, mentioned just as I made notes. The Kinderhook plates, you have no idea if that's a tracing of the actual plate or a tracing of a tracing, right? You have no way to prove that. Um, you know, calling... Uh, William Clayton, his friend. I bet Joseph called John Bennett, his friend too. I bet he called William Law, his friend too, right? That doesn't mean he was actually his friend. Um, I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny you frame, you know, his undying love for Sarah Crooks as a crush, you know, it makes it sound kind of cute and innocent. I think if I went and hung out with us, another woman late at night drinking beer uh, alone while she was giving me food, washing my feet. And then I tried to tell my wife, it's just a crush, babe. I think there might be, you know, I'm not sure she would agree with that assessment. Um, no, this was like, this guy struggled with, I mean, really struggled with this idea. He wanted to be with multiple women. He really did. Um, and it looks like, you know, look at what Brigham Young said about it. He gets a revelation when he's in England. So does Lorenzo Snow. William Clayton's maybe part of this. I mean, he would obviously, I think, be really intrigued by this idea that, hey, guess what? You actually can be with lots of ladies. Um, I think he would be really cool with that idea. Um, you brought up this thing about two journals. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but comparing that to you journaling on your phone versus an actual book, I think is pretty silly. Um, why would he have two sets of journals? 
they're both secret, presumably, right? He's not sharing one of them with people and then one of them's like super duper secret. Okay, that makes no sense. There's no reason for him, him to have two different sets of journals, okay? And I'm glad you brought up George Lobb. A lot of people don't know this story. George Lobb had a Nauvoo era journal that he rewrote cover to cover just so he could include the made up story of Brigham Young's transfiguration. Now, everybody knows the story of Brigham Young transfiguring, right? All these hundreds of people witnessed this in Nauvoo, right? Didn't make it into a single journal, a single letter, a single newspaper article until 10, 15, 20 years later. So would the Brighamites rewrite a journal? Yeah, apparently they would. They actually did. They rewrote George Lobb. He rewrote his journal. Would they modify a journal? Now, Mark tries to play this downplay. It's like, oh, they just modified Joseph's entry to kind of, you know, for a manuscript, for a history of the church. No, they changed it 180 degrees. They falsified the entry. Um, they added entries to his, his journal, his Nauvoo journals, in the Utah era. And this is right on the Joseph Smith Papers website, okay? You can see this there. They added entries. This is not me sleuthing it out. You can find it in the notes. They say that Robert Campbell added entries to Joseph's journal. But it's a bridge too far that Clinton, Clayton might have rewritten his journal. I'm not sure I follow that. Um, you know, what about uh, Mountain Meadows? I mean, goodness gracious, we all know that terrible story. They, they march 120 immigrants the desert under a false flag of truce and then murder them men women and children any anyone over the age of eight gets killed they left their bodies to rot in the desert made it look like indians did it and then waited 150 years to acknowledge and apologize for it but you know god forbid right i mean i don't know what i'm missing here like what they're cap and i'm not saying they're all terrible people okay my, my wife has family that goes back to the pioneer days they were they were sincere they were by and large, really good people. Good people can be pushed to really desperate deeds, especially when you have a man like Brigham Young who teaches you blood atonement, who teach you, teaches you to take an oath of vengeance. If they were willing to murder, and this took dozens of Brighamites to do, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, if they're willing to do that, if they're willing to make up stories of transfiguration, if they're willing to rewrite a journal, George Lobb's journal, if they're willing to make Joseph Smith's journal say the exact opposite of what it says, when he's flatly denying polygamy in private to a fellow polygamy insider, allegedly, they would do all of that. But for Mark and Jacob, no, no, it's a bridge too far to say that they might rewrite Clayton's journal or play funny business with that, right? Um, it does come down to a question of credibility. Who do you think is telling the truth? You have two mutually exclusive stories told by two different groups of people, they cannot both be right. And we get to decide who is more credible. For me, it is not the Brighamites. Okay. Very good. Uh, Leo and Jeremy are gone. We're going to bring back Jacob and Mark Tensmeyer from the affirmative team. They're going to get the exact same five-minute time frame to... Um, to have the last say on addressing the statements that were just made by the negative team. So go ahead, guys. We'll reset to five minutes. All right. Well, as we've said from the beginning, the purpose, our work here isn't to try to defend Brigham Young or William Clayton or the character of any of those people or to try to defend Brighamism at all. And it's, it's not really a question of credibility between the Brighamites and Joseph Smith because 
as we've said throughout this whole thing, there are multiple witnesses from within and from without Bergamites. And um, William Clayton's journal is a great is a great history about reviewing his, about reviewing the history of Joseph Smith's polygamy. But Joseph Smith's polygamy doesn't rise or fall on it. We never said that it did. Um, specific things about that. Let's see. Uh, to the two journal thing, the two him having two journals or him having odd journal habits. If you've studied 19th century journals, everybody has their own idiosyncratic uh, styles. It was just last month I was uh, talking to the archivist at the Community of Christ about Alexander Hale Smith's journal. And it was really weird. He uh, starts off, he writes one year, I think it's 1851, and then he jumps to 1854 and then jumps back to 1852. 1852. I don't even know how he did that or why. But, uh, and then he has entries that are actually all over the place. He'll start one entry in one place, then the same entry will show up again a few pages down. I don't know how or why you would do that, but he did. And I don't think that there's any kind of funny business there. There's nothing that was really that controversial about it either. That was just his habit. And uh, we know from his earlier habits that uh, William Clayton actually kept two sets of journals even before he became Joseph Smith's employee um, back when he first moved to Nauvoo. So I, I don't think that that's a red flag about, about anything like that at all. Um, a couple other points there. Uh, there are not really that many revelations that Joseph Smith had after 1842 when William Clayton was employed. So it's not surprising that there's not that many in his handwriting. And it actually isn't true that there isn't one in his handwriting. It's either section 127 or 128. The oldest copy we have is in William Clayton's handwriting. Um, the thing about England. Oh, yeah. Uh, the question was asked, so how, how is it possible that Brigham Young has this revelation about polygamy while he's still in England? Well, he's telling that story many years after the fact. Uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't have that. But in any case, he says in that very, very same speech where he talks about having the revelation in England, that he also had the revelation about baptism for the dead. And he goes on at length about it, long before Joseph ever instituted it. And there's actually contemporary evidence. He writes a letter about it, um, about how he, there's a prophetess in England that told him about baptism for the dead. But then Joseph Smith institutes baptism for the dead before they even get back from England. So it's so that's possible. Well, um, um, I think another thing I'll add before I let Jacob take over for that is um, I'm not we're not saying that it's not possible that the that the Clayton Journal was was rewritten after the fact or that that would that's not something that could couldn't happen. We're saying that the evidence we show doesn't show that it did happen. There's always possibilities that things could happen. But what does the evidence show that it actually did? And from where I stand, I don't think that the evidence as we see it says that it did happen. Anything added to that, Jacob? Um, one thing, just to talk on James Whitehead a little bit more. Oh so yeah, William, James Whitehead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So D, D. Michael Quinn wrote a letter, wrote a paper on Joseph the Third's patriarchal blessing, and he talks about James Whitehead having serious perjury issues in his he temple. Does, yeah where he is um, saying that he witnessed Joseph III be ordained when he had privately told Joseph's sons that he didn't. That, well, he, he told wasn't them there. He, yeah. wasn't, he wasn't there, but that he it was talked about in the office. So he contradicted his testimony in there. 
He contradicted, you know, that he, William D. Michael Quinn, if you read his footnote on, on James Whitehead has a list of contradictions and problems. And James Whitehead says he left the, the um, LDS, you know, the Brighamites over plural marriage. That isn't true. He actually was on a set on a mission and he was excommunicated for sexual misconduct on his mission. Yeah. Which, you know, we're talking about those issues in England. And I'm not saying that it's not possible that, you know, some of these guys had issues in England with being inappropriate with women. I'm saying that William Clayton, you know, regardless of whether that happened or not, you know, th that J Joseph Fielding clearly said that, um, you know, some of the elders were having issues. And so I don't think that affects the character or, you know, really is a kill argument whether or not dnc 132 or whether william clayton's nabu writings about plural marriage the reality is if you read his nabu journal it is not brighamite friendly in the succession no. <laughs> no okay very good <clears throat> okay so that concludes the second question was william clayton a reliable source fantastic both times both teams presented on that one. We're going to move to the third segment of this debate, which is the question of, was the sealing doctrine related to polygamy or not? Whatever it was they were teaching, we want to explore that. Was it tied to polygamy or not? And so that's our third question. And we're going to have the negative team go first on this one. Let's bring back Leo and Jeremy. All right, guys. Um, we're going to do a 10-minute segment from each team first and then five-minute rebuttals from each team second. So whenever you guys start, I'll do the 10-minute timer. Um, we'll have to leave the those dangling statements about Whitehead and uh, being X'd. Leave that in the, the Rigdon and Marx category. And, and the statement about Clayton being opposed to the 12, we'll have to leave that for another discussion. I would point out that the more you look at these things, the more they get clarified and oftentimes fall apart, in my opinion. Uh, in terms of the the um, concept of sealing and adoption, Joseph Smith revealed many, uh, there were many references revealed by Joseph in the scriptures. Um, DNC 1, Helaman 10. He uses the word seal often in his speeches. Um, so this is a, it's a term he's using throughout his ministry. He starts to clarify it, however. In January of 1844, he says, the doctrine or sealing power of Elijah is as follows. If you have power to seal on earth and in heaven, then we should do, be wise. The first thing you do is go and seal on earth your sons and daughters unto yourself and yourself unto your fathers in eternal glory. And go ahead and not go back, but use a little wisdom and seal all you can. And when all you can, well, does that just include your sons and daughters in your own family or sons and daughters extended outward? Um and when you get to heaven, tell your father that what you seal on earth should be sealed in heaven according to his promise. I will walk you, I will walk you through the gate of heaven and claim what I seal, and those that follow me and my counsel. If you will follow the revelations and instructions which God gives me, gives you through me, I will take you into heaven as my backload. Joseph and Hiram had this power. According to Joseph, he said, The Lord once told me that what I asked for I should have. I've been a, a, afraid to ask God to kill my enemies, lest some of them should peradventure repent. Hiram was given that in 18. 41 in section 121. Joseph and Hiram did say they received a revelation, as, as uh, Leo mentioned, um, on the topic of sealing a man and a woman together, but that it had nothing to do with polygamy. And by the way, once again, they're explicit about this. In Hiram's talk in April 18, 
1844, he says, the idea of marrying for eternity is the seal of the covenant is easily understood as to speaking of it, I could make all the world believe it. For it is noble and grand. It is necessary in consequence of the broken covenants in the world. I never see any scripture or prophet that wrote everything for eternity. I read that what God joins together, let no man put asunder. And he goes on and on to say how great this principle is. And then he goes on and on to say how awful the plurality of wives is. And that anyone who practices that is a fool. And he'd rather be the, the, the brother, a friend of the devil than someone who preaches plurality of wives. Joseph and Hiram once again denied before that Nauvoo, uh, Nauvoo City Council on June 8th and 10th of 1844 that that revelation that they received had anything to do with plurality of wives, but only had to do with um, men and women marrying in view of eternity. Jeremy, real quick, can you hit the slideshow button in the upper right for our mobile viewers? Yeah. And I'll add 15 seconds to the clock. Sorry to interrupt. Well, let's see. Okay. Yeah, let's make that as big as possible. Thanks a lot. Okay. Um, James Whitehead testified he heard of this in Nauvoo, but it only involved monogamous sealing. I wish I could respond to the perjury question about James Whitehead. I encourage anyone to go read his testimony and then go read what other people said he said. <laughs> He's not a perjurer. Um, he said that he, he knew of the practice or revelation of sealing men and women together. He hadn't seen a revelation on the subject, but he knew about it. And he said, yes, sir, I knew about this, but it applied only to husband and wife and a man could have could not have but one wife, and they were not allowed to have more than one. Um, and then uh, in Winter Quarters, again, has been referenced, he said that he saw the revelation on mon what he called monogamous sealing. And he said that that revelation was later so changed that it sanctioned polygamy. There was no such a thing in the, the revelation that Whitney showed me, nothing of the kind at all. Joseph, it appears that he did this in the case of Sarah and Whitney. He issued a blessing of sealing on her that had an effect on her family. I don't have time to go through that. But he later, in 1843, he starts to bring up the word adoption. We have this twice in the words of Joseph Smith. In May 16th, 1841, he references adoption. To them belong the adoption and the covenants. And then in October 15th, 1843, he says, One thing to see the kingdom, another to be in it, must have a change of heart to see the kingdom of God and subscribe the articles of adoption to enter there. And pro the problem is he, he didn't explain enough. Did the... The, the Brigham and his people know what they were doing. We'll, come, we'll get back to that. Lorenzo Snow, Snow seemed to be confused about sealing and marriage. He said that when he got off his mission in 1843 at an interview with Joseph Smith, when uh, he told me that he had taken my sister as a wife, that's Eliza. He did not say that she was taken as a wife, but he said that she was sealed to him, sealed to him for eternity. I was not a pra uh, acquainted with the practice of sealing at the time. I'd never heard of it before. I never saw the ceremony of sealing performed in the days of Joseph Smith. That's odd because he also then later says, no one knew about the plurality of wives more than I did because it was revealed to me in England. This was, of course, before Joseph ever said anything. These affidavits, by the way, they conflate the term married or sealed in every single one of them. Is it possible that these women were somehow sealed to Joseph in some sort of adoptive or sealed arrangement as perhaps even a daughter, but they would sign this affidavit because it says married or sealed. Those who wouldn't say it, uh, sign it if it only said married would say, sign it if it said married or sealed. I would also recommend uh, looking at the affidavits. There's some anomalies in them that, that are curious. Eliza Snow references uh, being adopted into the family of Joseph Smith. Anna Eliza Webb, she's the 19th wife of Brigham Young who divorced him. She has a strange... Um, thing that she references in her book. She says at one time, 
Joseph had 11 young ladies living in his family as adopted daughters to whom he had been sealed without the knowledge of his wife. Now, she's a she's a, an apostate to the to the Brighamite church. So, you know, what she says, you have to take with a grain of salt. But the interesting thing is she thinks that these women are adopted to Joseph Smith. She doesn't know Joseph Smith. She grew up in Utah. Where did she get the notion that Joseph was adopted to these girls? That was in the zeitgeist at the time somehow. The Brighamites tried to practice ceilings and adoptions, but without Joseph, they were horribly confused and they ultimately abandoned it. We have evidence in this, for example, with Joseph Kingsbury. Joseph Kingsbury, um, in his own personal history, by the way, he, you guys reference journals. He calls it a journal. It's a journal written oh, 10 years after the fact. Joseph Kingsbury uh, uh, says he was adopted by Newell K. Whitney as his son and that his wives, Joseph's two wives, were adopted to Newell K. Whitney as Newell's daughters. There were men-to-men ceilings. This is all after Joseph has died, but there were many men-to-men ceilings and adoptions frequently being performed. There was kingdom building. There was family building. Um, Brigham Young called the adoption or ceiling principles the highest ordinance in the church. However, over time, the Brighamite leader would get highly confused by the principle and the adoption would morph and it would change and it would eventually die out. Uh, to the point where leaders of the church would say, you know, I remember that principle being taught, but I don't really believe it. And finally, it changed in 18, I believe it was 1890, Wilfred Woodruff changed the practice um, of sealing, instead of being sealed directly to men and then sealed to Joseph Smith, they would seal whole families together and seal the line back to a certain point and then seal them to Joseph. Today, we're left with a practice that um, there's no more adoption in the church other than legal adoption. They don't even talk about that principle any longer. That has completely faded. If you go and look on the LDS website, that is no longer a part of LDS teaching. It's a, a bygone uh, principle. And to, uh, to reiterate, if Joseph Smith were doing something like adopting people into a family, and he and Emma as the mother and father of that family, then what Joseph Smith III said after he interviewed Melissa Lot Wiles was that he believed that his father had entered into some sort of ceremony with these various women that connected them in some way to the, uh, to the afterlife, but in no, no wise had anything to do with marital rights in the flesh. And if that is the case, and we're talking about Joseph doing something that these other people did not understand. They tried to practice it. They wanted to replicate it. But unfortunately, they conflated it with something that the Lord in the Book of Mormon called an abomination. They turned a beautiful practice of creating a family on earth that involves sealing people to yourself as your sons and daughters, as Joseph referenced, into a sexual perversion of men owning, and they called them their property, owning women as their property, and these women submitting to these men for the purpose only of bringing souls into the world. And the result of that, just like with Jacob's people in the Book of Mormon, was the heartbreak and the anguish of generations of women and their children. And so I think it's time to do a deeper dive into the subject of ceilings and adoptions. Is that it? Okay, very good. Uh, okay, so next segment, 3B, is the exact same question, only going to be covered by the affirmative team. 
Okay, thanks, Jeremy. Jacob and or Mark. Will both of you guys be presenting or just one it, of you? It's going to be me, and I have the show that I sent you. Okay, Jacob, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take you off, but jump on. In oh, Jacob can stay on. He can, make, he can make comments. Okay. All right, so we have yeah. – um, let me make sure we've got – presentation lined up before we start the timer yep there you are mark does that look right to you yeah this one's yours yeah okay we're going to set the timer for 10 minutes and as soon as you start presenting we'll okay we'll timer roll yeah so i agree let's do a deep dive into the adoption ceilings versus poor marriage ceilings this is a uh, this is an interesting new theory uh about trying to explain not only if joseph smith wasn't a polygamist then uh, where does where does poor marriage come from where why do we have all of this uh evidence well all these documents about ceilings i think it's an interesting theory let's let's do a dive into it so if you want to uh next slide mark yeah so there are different kinds of ceilings so there are marriage ceilings and uh i think the other side we've, we've, we've gone over this we agree that marriage ceilings were a thing especially that uh joseph did and Hiram did teach about ceilings to legal spouses for eternity. Um, that they that they did teach that it was something where you would have a ceremony with someone who had keys that would uh, perform that ceremony for you. And then you'd be, and then you'd be spouses for eternity. Now that's never formally announced or instituted. That is talked about, but if there's nothing, in, there's really not anything in print. Not until there's the Navi neighbor thing in June. But it's not like uh, say like baptism for the dead where they formally announce it and put it into practice. Um, so ceilings for time and eternity or eternity to a plural spouses, that's practice in private while being denied by its participants. Everybody who did that denied that. That's the case until 1852. And so those are kinds of ceilings. Next slide. And then there's adoption ceilings. So adoption ceilings is interesting. It's taught in the abstract. Um, and Joseph mentions a few different mechanisms for that. He talks about declaration by an elder. You can be uh, sealed to your progenitors by being baptized for them. That's the way that was talked about. And patriarchal blessings is another way that you could do that. So there's a lot of different um, mechanisms. He talks about it. It's never really, again, formally put into practice. So we have a lot of adoption ceilings, like Jeremy said, that uh, adoption ceremonies that are done in, in post-martyrdom Nauvoo but we don't have any uh, in pre-martyrdom novel. Any, we have little or nothing, really, to say that Joseph Smith ever performed like a uh, an adoption-type ceiling. Next slide. And so the issue we have here is we have these uh, these individuals, these women, that are said to have been sealed to Joseph Smith. And so we have things like what well, we used last debate, the, uh, the entry in Brigham Young's journal where it says that Agnes Colbreth was either washed, anointed, or sealed, or wet and sealed to Brigham Young. She's also identified by by um, John Bennett as somebody who had been married to Joseph Smith. And so the question is, is, is that a sealing or is that polygamy? I think it's a good question. So the issue we're going to look into is, um, are these sealings or are these um, or are these are these adoption sealings or are these marriage sealings? And now the the reason we look into this we got to look for direct evidence because those two things are not mutually exclusive as jeremy said brigham young had adopted ceilings had adopted sons and daughters sealed to him and he also had wives sealed them so let's look and see what this is so um the evidence of marriage i bring this up for context this is a uh, this goes to show just like how very subtle and how um plausible deniability was the intention for a lot of these records this is wilford woodruff's journal this is august 2nd 1846 this is uh, how when he was sealed to his poor wives, and he just says simply that he had some instruction by Brigham Young 
about the principles of the priesthood and sealing. And then he lists these people present. Now, of course, if you looked at this earlier, you would look and say, now that doesn't sound like he was actually married to them, and you're right. But the thing is, is that there's not any controversy that he was sealed to these women. We, we know that he was. We know from other evidence he was. Um, he had children with, with them. So that's kind of what we're looking at. So, so we shouldn't expect an overabundance of very blatant, explicit evidence. But that in mind, let's look at a few. Next slide. So this right here, this is the entry in Joseph Smith's journal. This is June 3rd, 1843. This is in shorthand. This is, again, an attempt to conceal, but it's still, it's in Taylor shorthand. The, um, this Taylor shorthand that translates to married to Rhoda Richards and Willard Richards married to Susan Lipton. So you have the word married in there. Next slide. We have the Lot Family Bible. And so here's another one. This is where they talk about in their in their family sections of their family record section of the Bible, how it gives the date, and uh, it says that that um, Joseph and Hiram performed the sealing ceremony between um, Cornelius and Pramel de Lot, and then it says in, the, in a couple lines down, it says that that uh, brother and sister Lot that they gave their daughter Melissa to wife. So he uses the word to wife. It doesn't give Joseph's names, but that's typical. And that's, that's, but I mean, there's an omission there, but that's a strange admission. Like, why wouldn't they give the name of the husband? There's a reason they, they don't give the name of the husband. The next column over when she marries Ira Willis, it gives, it gives her last name as Smith. And then of course, we know from other evidence, including the temple, the, the February 1846 temple rolls that she was sealed to Joseph Smith. Okay. Next one. Yeah. So this is an entry in Zena Huntington's journal. This is another one of Joseph Smith's wives. She starts this in June, 1844. This is the last month of Joseph's life. She says how she goes to a um, to up to the hill to hear a lecture by Hiram Smith. She hears them. And she says, and my husband was also in attendance. All right. Here's the thing. Her legal husband, Henry Jacobs, he's gone on a mission. In fact, the next entry talks about how she how he comes back. So the husband she refers to is not Henry Jacobs. We know, again, from other evidence that she is sealed to Joseph Smith. And she refers to him as my husband. So those are a few documents. Even if we're going to take things like the um, Doctrine and Covenants section 132, if we're going to take the Clayton journals, if we're going to take the expositor, we're going to take all that off the table, all the later accounts, Utah accounts. Here's some contemporary accounts we have that refers to them as, as marriages. And uh, next slide. So that's what we have here. Um, and again, then we, we're going to go into some third-party statements. So here we have uh, William, the William Marks statement about seeing the revelation on ceilings. And he says very clearly, it's about polygamy. Leonard Sobey says the same thing. Both individuals who have no motive to lie, who are not brigamites, and who are never pro-polygamy. So next slide. You, just you see it again for anybody who hasn't seen it. I have the William Marks statement again where he says that uh, he goes to Hiram, which is uh, kind of matches what William Clayton says, that Hiram's initially against polygamy, and then he says if he gets a revelation on it, um, then he can, then he'll believe it, and then he reads it to the High Council, and he says that he doesn't believe it. William Marks he finds it objectionable, but he see, but he's, uh, but he he finds it objectionable that the High Council receives it. And, okay, next one. So. Again, there's a couple third parties right there. Another one is Ebenezer Robinson. Ebenezer Robinson says that he was approached by Hiram Smith after the revelation came about. He gives a few statements about this, but he says, again, he says in here very clearly that it was 
that that it was about plural marriage that how Hiram Smith explains ceilings it was about plural marriage okay next slide okay evidence for adoption ceilings is very slim the kind of things I went over I haven't found comparable things to that for adoption ceilings anything from people that are trying to defend Joseph Smith from from that from about these things um, it's it's really very vague it's conflicting so let's go on the next slide um, there's a really lack of support. If you look at these longer explanations by Joseph Smith's family trying to explain how poor marriage come about, things like William Smith's letter to Joseph Smith III, where he explains about how the Quorum of the Twelve were conspiring and Joseph was going to put them down if he had time. Emma Smith's interviews with Jason Briggs, Joseph Smith III, no mention of adoption ceilings at all. They have plenty of opportunity to talk about it. They don't mention that at all. They don't say that this was, that this was something that was co-opted. No mention of that at all. Next slide. Um, there's one statement that's uh, kind of attributed to quoting Emma, where she says that they were only sealed for eternity. But again, this is a very secondhand, very late, very secondhand statement. And she doesn't actually say ceilings as that they were adoption ceilings. As you might have meant, just, you could just have used them in eternity only ceilings. Next slide. This right here, the statement, this letter that's in this letter to E.C. Brand in 1830, 18. 1883 is the only statement I think from Joseph Smith III where he explicitly says adoption ceilings. And even then, he's not sure when he doesn't say how he knows that. If I go to the next slide, he's really inconsistent about adoption ceilings. Uh, when he writes about the origins of plural marriage in, in uh, Life of the Prophet, he says that he says that's not it. He says his father um, inadvertently did ceilings uh, for eternity only to men that wanted them, and that turned into polygamy but that they weren't adoption ceilings. And he says in um, a letter later to uh, Mr. Bright, he says that he, he says he equates ceiling with plural, he equates ceiling with, with eternal only marriages. He doesn't say it was adoption ceilings. Next slide. And even more to the fact that there are, there are um, statements where they deny it. So James Whitehead, who we've talked about a lot, and I agree, we ought to look at his deposition. He says that he he says that the Quorum of the Twelve invented adoption ceilings as a way to take over the church. He says, he says, but Joseph never taught that doctrine. I can prove it beyond power of contradiction. So James Whitehead doesn't use it. He defends it. And see, I think I maybe have time for the one more. Um, William Smith, the next slide. He says the same thing in the proclamation to the Warsaw, to the um, Warsaw Signal. He says that the Quorum of the Twelve um, invented this as a way to take over the church. You can finish with a couple more sentences because I was kind of slow on some of those slides. Any any last sentences for this part? Um, no, I think that's about it. Um, I, I did have a couple more slides, but I think we can go over those in the rebuttal section. Those are things that Jeremy did bring up. So Yeah, um, rebuttal and then that. final comments. You'll have three minutes as well. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Nice work. Um, let's bring the other team back in. Let's see. The third section of the third question, we're still on the question of was the ceiling doctrine related to polygamy? Now we're going to start the rebuttals. Five minutes each team. We're going to bring the negative team back on. Let's see. That's Leo and Jeremy Hoop. We're going to do five minutes per rebuttal. And gentlemen, start whenever you're ready, and I'll start the clock as soon as you, you begin. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah, this, this is kind of a tough topic because there is so little about it. And we are both, both teams are just kind of trying to tease out details from various sources to try to, you know, come up with a counter theory or, or uh, in, in the case of the other team, you know, debunk it. But, um, you know, Whitehead, what you just mentioned about Whitehead, I'm not sure you're, you're reading that correctly because what he's talking about is Brigham Young and, and they changed this adoption idea. It was men to men ceilings, you know, father to son and that kind of thing. 
um, that's that's what he's talking about there about um, this change to adoption because he does talk about in his testimony that the revelation he saw was about ceilings, right? Um, so he's probably I think he's he's trying to distinguish between those two. Um, and you know you, you brought up some sources where people don't mention ceilings, but I, I'm not sure what that that proves. They just didn't mention it. I mean, they may not have known about it or understood it. Um, I think very few people did. Joseph and Hiram did talk about it publicly, but not in great detail, as Jeremy points out. There are references. Um, you know, he he gives some addresses where he mentions um, I can't remember the, the guy's name, Father Cutler, maybe Alpheus Cutler, someone like that. But he says, hey, if he goes and gets the sealing power, he can go seal these people up and take them into heaven. <clears throat> Talks about taking. Um, that's, that sounds entirely different from, hey, I'm going to go marry 30 women. Um, so there is, I, I want people to understand, there is a viable alternative out there to what they were doing. And if you go based on what they actually said, what they said, hey, this is what we were talking about. They, they're actually fairly transparent. Like, yeah, this, there's this idea of sealing people. There's not a lot of detail, but they are transparent. There's this sealing power. It's very rare, but it happens. And once you, once you get it, Joseph says you can be crafty. That's the word he uses. Um, there's this idea of being married for eternity. But they are very adamant, very clear in trying to distinguish that from polygamy and saying this is not the same. They could not be more you know, you know, clear about that this is not the same thing. Now, you can say they're lying. You can say they're just trying to put up a front, and that's fine. I don't, I don't blame anyone who, who decides to believe that. But you have to say they're lying. You cannot say there's some carefully worded denial because it's not careful. There's nothing careful about it. Um, the Lot Bible, I would actually love to look at that. Let me open that one up. The, the theory that Mark's putting forth is that this Bible is proof that she's married to Joseph Smith, right? And he, as he points out, doesn't mention Joseph. Hopefully, hopefully you guys can see this. Um, and the theory is, Mark says, hey, they, they write in this, this in code saying he's, she's married, but we're not going to say who she's married to because that would raise some strange questions. Well, doesn't the fact that they wrote that she's married raise some strange questions? If someone sees this, they're going to say, wait, when did this happen? When did Melissa get married and to whom? Right? So obviously, this is possibly something that's written later, in my opinion. Okay? Look at the next entry. John S. Lott was something i think was married they say was twice was was married to mary fawcett april the and then someone writes this little five below it there's not a year um it's like they weren't even sure of the date if they were writing this in the moment i'm pretty sure they would know what day it was and what year it was they would have written the whole thing um probably the easiest way to tell if this maybe was not written in the moment is the ink color this ink color, in my opinion, is much lighter. It looks very similar to this ink color, kind of a lighter purple, whereas this one is a darker black. It's a much, it's, it's a, not a lot darker, but it is a darker black than what you see down here in these two entries, okay? And that's the easiest way to tell when something was written at a different time. They, they use this analysis in the Joseph Smith papers. They'll say, hey, look at the ink color, indication it wasn't written at the same time. You know, that's how we know some of these entries in Joseph Smith's journal were added in the Utah era, Okay. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, I want to reference this idea of, you know, people kind of you have this this group different groups of people that are not Brighamites saying things, right? You know, John Bennett wasn't a Brighamite either, right? But he still had a theory about polygamy. And you guys still have not addressed what uh, Francis Higby said. I mean, maybe he's just making stuff up, but he's saying people offered me money 
made me big, serious offers to come up with another story like Bennett did. Just tack on to what Bennett did. It's working. So there were obviously people willing to do it. That explains some of the people. It doesn't explain everybody. There was also kind of this strange confluence of people who became convinced, all right? Um, because there are a lot of witnesses. You've got all the Brighamites, you've got the 12, the 12 and people like that along with them convincing people that this was going on. So it's not surprising to hear people saying, yeah, okay, you know what? Maybe there was this happening after the fact, even though they're not Brighamites. Okay, great. So now we're going to hear from the affirmative team um, with their five-minute rebuttal. Give me just a moment to swap everyone out. Jacob, Mark, welcome back. Um, resetting the clock as soon as you begin. Hey, Mark, would you be okay if I start out on this one? And oh, go for it, yeah. Go for it. Okay. So just to start on the subject of adoption sealing, saying that, you know, obviously, you know, that you th you're claiming that what Joseph Smith was doing with adoption was different than what the later guys were doing. And so therefore, you know, that explains the statements about it. But, you know, why didn't James Whitehead say that? If he was Joseph's private, private secretary, as he led, he was a Nauvoo insider. Yeah. Why is he not saying, you know, what the real doctrine was and what the apostles changed it? No, instead, he says that Heber C. Kimball, who he thought was a very kind man to him, he said, came to me and said, Brother Whitehead, I want you to come into my family, you and your wife and your children. I says, I can't do that. It is all right, he said. I says, where did you get your doctrine? Did Joseph teach you that? He goes, no matter, it is all right. I says, I cannot do it. It does not. It is not right. I will not do it for any man in the world. I believe in the work, but Joseph never taught that doctrine. Now I can prove it beyond the power of contradiction. Now I would say that Joseph did indeed teach adoption, but the question is whether or not Joseph was adopting men to him if he was performing adoption ceilings. That is the big issue here. And the fact of the matter is there is no evidence. It's so strange that we only have women being sealed to Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. No evidence of any men claiming to have been sealed to Joseph and Nauvoo. Not even Brigham Young. Brigham Young says he hasn't been sealed to his father yet. And they want, you know, when the temple is completed, then he will be sealed to Joseph there. And so this adoption, you know, the, this idea that adoption was conflated or transformed into plural marriage doesn't really fly, in my opinion, because I just don't see a ton of evidence for adoption. And Mark Tensmeyer recently was pointing out this quote from John Bernheisel, a note that was included in Joseph's journal on October 26th. Notated, notated that it's written after the fact. Yeah, it is. It, 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 it's added after the fact, but he notates that he is. He's not trying to pretend. He says, the following named deceased people were sealed to me, gone in Burzile, on October 26, 1843, by President Joseph Smith, Mariah Bernheisel's sister, Brother Samuel's wife, Catherine Kramer, he lists, you know, a bunch of eight, you know, he lists like 10 or 10 or so women that are sealed to him. And Mark Tinsborough is like, hey, maybe this is adoption yeah. going on. And I'm like, isn't it interesting that all of these are women? All women, yeah. He's all listing women. all these family members and acquaintances, and he doesn't list any men. And that's, you know, just the fact is we don't have any records of any allegations that are credible of men being sealed to Joseph Smith by Joseph Smith in his lifetime, even though Joseph taught it. Or, or daughter or women as daughters being sealed to Joseph Smith. We just don't have any direct evidence of that. And, and even more particularly that these women that were his wives, that they were sealed to him as daughters and that that was later conflated into polygamy. We just, we don't have direct evidence of that. And that's what's at issue here. Um, there's a couple of things, Mark. If you want to bring up my slide again, there's a couple of things that um, that Jeremy brought up. If you want to go to the next one, 
some of these things. Uh, Jeremy, I believe, um, yeah, Jeremy is is uh, quoting from Lorenzo Snow's, the abstract version of Lorenzo Snow's deposition. But in the in the actual court reporter's part, um, Parley Kelly asked him at one point, did he say he was taking his wife and married to him, or did he say he was that she was sealed to him? And Lorenzo says they sealed him because that's the terminology Joseph used. And then he asks him a bit, did you know anything about the ceremony? And he says, no, he didn't. I didn't know anything about it, which makes sense because Lorenzo Snow um, didn't live in Nauvoo during the time Joseph was alive. He, he came in for visits at some time. And he says, well, what did Joseph tell you about sealings? And then he explains the context. He says, he told me the plural marriage was for time and eternity was a revelation from God. And he was commanded to put into practice. And then my sister had been sealed to him and the parties with him. So he says, the context of that about sealings is it was about plural marriage. He doesn't say that it was some, it was a different kind of sealings. If you look at the actual transcript, the analyzed young quote, when you look at the whole thing, she says that, that he had family accepted as he had adopted daughters. He did. The Lawrence, the uh, Lawrence sisters and Lucy Walker were legally his wards. They were in a sense, his daughters. Eleven's or yeah, eleven's an exaggeration. But she doesn't say that they were adopted daughters because they were sealed to him. It says they're adopted and that they had been sealed to him. So there, that's a different thing. Um, and I think that's that's about that for that. Let's see. Anything else brought up? Yes, absolutely do read the James Whitehead deposition. Um, can I mention something in that real quick? Absolutely do, man. Read that. Yeah. Okay. So he, when they, they bring up you know this idea that, okay, so he's talking about sealing for eternity. And he says, so if he's teaching this doctrine of sealing for eternity, they ask why Ed directly, and a man has a living wife and a dead wife, both sealed to him, that would be polygamy in heaven. And Whitehead gets flustered and doesn't really want to answer the question at that point. That's clearly polygamy in heaven yeah. if we're talking about eternality only sealings. And now yeah, that's yeah. my point. All right. Okay, very good. Um, so that was, let's see, affirmative team rebuttal. Okay, awesome. So we are going to bring everybody back on for a moment. We're going to, this last segment, we're going to give everybody three minutes to just kind of conclude any additional thoughts that weren't really you know, tied to any of the three specific formal questions, as well as things they might have forgotten to mention during their segments. We know having a timer breathing down your neck can, can lead to forgetfulness and things. So everybody's going to get three last minutes to, to make their um, claims. And uh, we're going to start with somebody on the negative team. Why don't we do Leo You still there? I can't hear you, Mark. Oh, I said we'll start with you, Leo, then Mark Tensmeyer, then we'll do Jeremy, and then we'll finish with Vic, Jacob Vadrine, each getting closing remark time of three minutes. Does that work? Okay, let's yep. do it. All Go right, ahead. thanks. Okay, yeah, just one real quick thing on the Whitehead thing. I, I maybe didn't explain it very well, but he's distinguishing between <clears throat> Brigham Young's men to men ceilings and Joseph Smith's, or this other idea that he said he saw a revelation on ceilings. Whitehead does say he saw a revelation on ceilings. He's very clear about that. He's trying to distinguish between what Brigham Young introduced after the fact. Um, look, this really comes down to one thing. It's kind of like pick your conspiracy theory. Um, you have two sides claiming mutually exclusive things. There are lots of people on both sides claiming the opposite. All right. Either Joseph and Hiram straight up lied through their teeth and they're, I'm sorry, huge hypocrites. Um, 
and somehow convinced dozens of people to go along with them, fake affidavits, false affidavits, I should say, um, you know, getting them to go out and lie publicly, or Brigham Young did that. Those are your options. You cannot have it both ways. You can't say that like, like um, that there was that there was something. There, there, there's really one. There's one conspiracy happening on one side or the other. It could be Joseph. It could be Brigham. So if, for me, it comes down to a question of credibility. Who do I find more credible? Um, for every affidavit that Mark and Jabe can put out, there's a counter affidavit. For every witness from Temple Lot, there's a counter witness. Um, every historical document has questions around it. It really comes down to who do you find more credible uh, for me. And I do not find the Brighamites credible, given the degree to which they modified historical documents uh, the degree to which they are willing to 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 lie, to even in some cases kill, um, you know, there's really their their actions are screaming one thing, and it is do not trust what we tell you. You need to scrutinize everything we say, every piece of evidence we put forward. So, you know, there's a reason the phrase "lying for the Lord" is attributed to the Brighamite movement because, again, their their definition of truth is not did it happen. It's does it fit my narrative? If it fits their narrative, then it is therefore true in their eyes. Um, you look at when they did eventually abandon polygamy. Look at their pattern there. Did they say, yep, we're done with polygamy. Uh, we really are done. No, they said, we're done with polygamy. Wink, wink, go to Mexico and get married or just do this in secret. We're lying. Um, they taught the children. If you're asked who your kids are or your, who your parents are, you say, I don't know. Who's your mom? You say, I don't know. I think it was Joseph F. Smith who became concerned at one point because he's saying, you know, we're raising a generation of just like, like bold-faced liars here. This might be a problem in our culture. Um, and he was right. It is a It was a problem. So if it comes down to credibility, and for me, that is what it comes down to. The Brighamites are not credible and, and everything they've put forward, forward should be questioned. Okay, Those final statements by Leo. Let's bring Mark Tensmeyer on now. The affirmative. Okay, Mark, three minutes, go right ahead. All right. Um, yeah, a few things there, a few things to go over. So I don't think the question is so much credibility as it is plausibility. How, I think the the way I've looked at it and the way when I first looked into this, I looked into this thinking maybe it is plausible that there are two different versions of this or that maybe it's just as plausible that um, Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist. But what I, what I found is that there were too many overlapping details from too many different sources that I didn't find it really plausible that it could have all just been made up. Um, I think it is an issue, an issue of evidence. I don't, I think it's, it's improper to frame this is are the Brighamites credible? I, even if we think that they aren't, um, how could they have done this? How could they have come up with this body of evidence and have it uh, match up with other things? Now, um, the Francis Higby quote that Leo brought up, that's an, that's an interesting one. And I think it is true that there are indeed a lot of people in the Nauvoo period who are trying to falsely accuse Joseph Smith of polygamy, but that doesn't mean that other people aren't telling the truth. That's that's another big problem I find in this whole discussion is, is this tendency to treat people like a collective, treat people like a group. It's the Brighamites. 
right? That are all not credible. I'm not really saying every one of those people that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of the United States and Utah is an individual. That every one of those people that um, raise objections to Joseph Smith and Nauvoo about being a polygamist is an individual. And uh, some of them are absolutely more credible than others. Uh, Austin Coles, for example, I don't see any evidence that Austin Coles was involved in any kind of plot to kill Joseph Smith. I don't, I don't know that he knew that that um, that William Law was doing that. I think the fact that he lived the rest of his life as actually a faithful Restoration believer that earned the admiration of a lot of the RLDS people shows that he wasn't. Um, I, he just does not fit that mold of somebody who, who. Um, who's this ruffian who doesn't, who's unprincipled center. James Blakesley is another one who's also part of the Wells that fits in that same mold. <clears throat> and so um, it, there's a, that's how I've come to see it, is that the evidence points towards this. I, part of me would like it to be true that Joseph wasn't a polygamist, but I, I just can't see that the evidence really shows that that's true. And um, that's really, I think, all there is to it. Okay. Is that it, Mark? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Thanks so much. Um, Jeremy Hoop, you're next. Three minutes on final remarks. And um, whoops. The actual Jeremy Hoop, not your slides. Okay. Three minutes as, as soon as you start. Take it away. Um, I'm with Leo um, on the question of credibility. I don't believe it's about plausibility. I do believe it's about credibility because the plausibility doesn't uh, apply when you don't have direct evidence. We, we have a statements, basically. We have statements by people and we have records that cannot be corroborated were contemporaneous. And we have many records after the fact. And so the question is, who do you believe? By the way, I showed two contemporaneous records today that should give everyone serious pause. Heber Kimball, alone with a woman, on his mission at night, she combed my head and we washed our feet and went to bed. We washed our feet and went to bed. If anyone had that as Joseph Smith's entry in his journal, this question would almost be entirely over. This is before Heber supposedly knows anything about the practice from Joseph. Joseph M. and Hiram, I suggest anyone thinking about this subject or wanting to know more, really study what they actually did in Nauvoo. From the time of John C. Bennett till Joseph's death, they were fierce in opposition to this. Go ahead and, and check out all of the excommunications. Check out the lawsuit Joseph um, uh, engaged in with Chauncey Higby, where he sued him for slander and libel publicly uh, for accusations of practicing spiritual wifery. Check out the Times and Seasons publications. Check out the Voice of Innocence, which was written by Joseph and W.W. Phelps and, and Emma. Um, look at Hiram's speech on April 8, 1844. Joseph's speech, May 26, 1844. And then compare that to the Brighamites. Again, I want to paint the picture. Zina Huntington in 1846, I believe it's October. She's standing eight months pregnant in the presence of her husband, Henry, and being married to Brigham Young. She has not divorced Henry. She's eight months pregnant with Henry's baby. And she goes to marry Brigham. Where is that in section 132? If the people who believe in this principle 
can't even abide by the revelation they hold up as sacred, if they will murder to protect it, if they will lie to protect it, then how can we possibly believe them? And I would say the FLDS unfortunately recently proved how that works with women going on national television and lying for the Lord to protect their beloved Warren Jeffs. By the way, so did 50 um, na former national security intelligence officers signed a public statement saying that the Hunter Biden laptop story was a fake, was Russian propaganda when they knew it was true. People do lie when there's uh, agendas on the line. Okay, great. Jacob Vedreen, we're bringing you on now. You are the last to go with your final remarks. Three minutes as soon as you start. Go right ahead. Okay. Well, I'm grateful to be able to be on this debate. I would say that plural marriage is just one piece of many different things that is going on in Nauvoo. And it's not the only secret thing going on in Nauvoo. There are temple ordinances that are going on. If you look up what's going on in Joseph Smith's Quorum of the Anointed, they are doing endowments, they are doing anointings at that time. And so just to reference, he says, how is this, um, her being sealed to um, Brigham Young when she has a husband, you know, fit with DNC 132, if, just look at verse 41. If a man receiveth a wife in the new or everlasting covenant, if she be with another man, and I have not appointed unto her by the holy anointing, she hath committed adultery and she shall be destroyed. So there's a reference there where there's an escape clause where under certain circumstances by the holy anointing, a woman could be given to a different man. And that's what Brigham Young, when he announced that, and uh, he gave one talk privately, he didn't have that sermon published in the 1860s, where he said that some received this doctrine from Joseph, a few have received it from me, few have received it from Joseph. It's not really something I want disseminated. It's just I'm explaining a principle wherein the priesthood divorce is acceptable because he says generally it isn't. If a man's a righteous man, then you know you're, you getting divorced to him will be, be your condemnation. So uh, Joseph Smith is introducing all sorts of other things in the Nauvoo period. He's introducing this doctrine of you know, baptism for the dead. He's introducing endowments and other temple rituals that DNC one. 24, the Nauvoo Temple Revelation says that Joseph is going to be introducing new principles and new ordinances. And, you know, when the temple is, is finished, they're going to experience them. And he's introducing this doctrine called theocracy, a very Old Testament do doctrine in the July 1842 times and seasons. That's publicly proclaimed that they should have a government the way it was back in Moses's day or in Joseph of Egypt's day. And at the October 1840 General Conference, Joseph Smith gives uh, instructions on priesthood, teaching that animal sacrifice will be restored when the priesthood of Elijah is fully revealed with its powers of the Melchizedek priesthood. And so, and that contradicts the Book of Mormon way more than Jacob 2 is contradicted by DNC 132. The Book of Mormon is very explicit on animal sacrifice, and Joseph Smith wasn't afraid to teach animal sacrifice during the last couple of years of his life. So to reference, you know, the Jacob 2 contradicts, you know, not just the Uriah. If you look at DNC 132.39, it says, And nothing they did sin, save those things which they did not receive from me. So that's saying that both David and Solomon received things that were not given of the Lord. And that, you know, in the case of David, it, the next verse is only referencing back to 1 Kings 15.5, where it says, David did right, which is in the eyes of the Lord, and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And so I hope we can all do a deeper dive into what Joseph Smith was teaching in the Nauvoo period 
and you know get to really dig into the history because there's a lot more there than just plural marriage and adoption. Though I believe those are two big pieces of the temple doctrine that Joseph Smith was doing. Thanks. Very good. Let's bring everybody back on now. Um, cool. Uh, great. Th thank you so much. Both teams I think were very well prepared. They, they covered some really good things. Please yeah. be grateful to them in the comments and, and let us know, you know, what you learned new and, and what questions you have. So we're going to move into the last segment, which is does a live Q&A for the, the audience watching it live. And if you're not watching it live, that dissuade you from from adding some questions we'll have these guys try to hop on on the youtube channel and in the, in the coming months and answer some of these for you especially if you address them specifically to who your questions for so right now take a minute to write your your most pressing questions in the comments and we're going to be teeing up these to ask the team um, okay so i've been starring them throughout the presentation um First one is from a gentleman named James Justice. I'm going to show these on screen. Why wasn't DNC 132 also a compilation of revelations with words added and words removed? Does anyone want to take that one? I don't. We don't. We don't know. Yeah, there's, I don't. There's just okay. there's no there's no way to know because we have a document that shows up in the. We don't actually know the time frame it shows up. The earliest I can trace it is the 1880s. The Kingsbury document. And, and, and that document, look, that could just as easily been Kingsbury having to write that thing down in preparation for the Temple Lot case as it could be an actual contemporaneous document. So we just don't know that. We just have that document showing up in the 1880s. And I know they said there's all these other versions out there, but the versions are versions. The, the one document the church puts on display is the Kingsbury document. And the Kingsbury story, frankly, has tons of holes, but it doesn't have anything to do with compiling things. It's supposed to be a single time that he wrote it down um, a, a few days or maybe a week after um, uh, Clayton writes his his uh, version of it. And and that's all we know. Anybody else want to take a, a stab at that one? Or you want to move on? OK. Next one is from Edward Divini. He says, when read next to other revelations given to Joseph Smith, 132 reads like it was from a totally different God. The wording and style of it are different. I'll take a stab at that one. Yeah. Right. So um, that's the so um, there's the Enid DeBarth study that's uh, been pretty well known and. Um, the way, if you just go through looking at the things like that, it's very things like that are very subjective. And um, I would love to see an actual, like, um, like statistically valid um, stylometry analysis of that of that section. I think that would be a neat thing to do because that's pretty objective. But um, you could probably think the same thing about a lot of other revelations if you're just going to go through subjectively like that. I mean, you could go through section seventy-six probably. And say that that's a, there's a very different tone to that. There are some doctrinal ideas that are different from the Book of Mormon, like it changes the idea of what um, of what second death is. It kind of redefines that a little bit. Um, there are some of the some ideas that are in section like section uh, 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, for instance, tells Martin Harris that he'll be destroyed if he doesn't him and his property if he doesn't 
mortgage his property to pay for the Book of Mormon. So a lot of those things can be very subjective. And that's why I would like, I'd like to see if we could any kind of like, um, like a, like a stylometry analysis on that. I, I would recommend watching Michelle Stone's um, YouTube pod, uh, channel podcast. Uh, I think it's 132 problems. She breaks down section 132 from a scriptural analysis. She doesn't go into the history much. But if you look at section 132, it has so many internal inconsistencies and so many problems that, that put it up against uh, other scripture. Um, and the internal inconsistencies with it, the, the inaccuracies related to, to what's in scripture. And the answer is, well, they're just revealing more, I guess. Well, it's really inconsistent from that from that standpoint. It also seems to change voices, actual stylistic voices within the narrative itself, almost like the Book of Mormon does with, you know, having different authors in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, can I add one thing on that? The, I, I don't think in this case it's that subjective, Mark, because you, know, you can you can compare, uh, yeah, I know, I know, I'm just giving my opinion. It's, it's, you can compare Jacob too, and God's like, polygamy is a real issue. And you know the reason why he says it's an issue because of the impact it has on women and children. That's his reason, right? And then you compare that to 132, where he's like, get on board, girl, or you're going to be destroyed. You're going to get wrecked, basically, right? I mean, that's a different voice, in my opinion. I, I just don't know how you can reconcile that and be like, in Jacob 2, God's just so concerned. He just really cares about women. And now he just doesn't. He's like, I don't care. Just get on board or I'm coming down on you. I'm going to drop a hammer. And frankly, that sounds like Brigham Young to me. And here's why. <laughs> Brigham Young made a big effort to disparage Hiram, to disparage Emma, to disparage anyone close to Joseph Smith as being inferior, as being spiritually weak, as being uh, mentally unstable. And those words calling Emma someone who needs to get in line or be destroyed are really um, interesting in light of what the Lord himself we know said, if you believe that it's a revelation, called her an elect lady and called Hiram. He loved the integrity of his heart. So, so my opinion on that is people could argue, say the Old Testament, the New Testament sound like they come yeah. from totally different gods. All revelation is given in the context of the people who receive it, Brigham Young said. And he said that if the Book of Mormon was given in a different setting, you know, it might have come across translated different. So I would say DNC 132 fits a lot of these new concepts that Joseph Smith is introducing in Nauvoo. Where's the revelation on exaltation or becoming gods, which Joseph Smith preaches in the King Follett discourse on, on other and in other sermons? That's in DNC 132. You know, this language of being destroyed, a lot of people are offended by that, but that's all over the Old Testament, God threatening destruction on different people for different things. So that's my two cents on that. If we can rely on the Old Testament and the New Testament, which Joseph said we couldn't. Right. I mean, that's kind of one of the central teachings of the Book of Mormon is that the Bible has, has some major issues, right? So I'm is not a, sure is a really, stumbling really block. Valid. Plus, Jacob, too, is an Old Testament period, is it not? Kind of related. Um, so Jessica Long also wants to know, like, what didn't Joseph say if it contradicts the Bible or BOM, they are an imposter? Does anyone want to cover that? Absolutely. That's one of the stories that Brigham Young changed, by the way. Brigham Young changed in the history that notion. There's a, there's a, he gets up and has this sermon where he says um, that Hiram stood up and grabbed the books of Scripture. And he said, if anyone contradicts this, you're an imposter. And he says that Joseph put his head in his hands and he said, Brigham, get up. And uh, by the way, this is not, there's not, no contemporaneous evidence for this story. This is, I believe, in 1866. And then Brigham gets up and waxes eloquent about saying, you know, um, 
really, I don't care about the scriptures if we don't have a living oracle, because I'd rather have the living oracles than all the scriptures in the world. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the substance yeah. of the quote. And he manufactured that story in order to disparage Hiram. And he says at the end of the quote, Hiram gets up and asks for forgiveness from the people. The only thing we have from the contemporaneous record is that Joseph says, do not contradict the revealed word of God. So, so my, my take on if it contradicts the Bible or Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith held up the Bible as, you know, an important keystone. He preached more out of the Bible than yet. Yeah, you know, there's no record of him ever preaching out of the Book of Mormon, but he preached out of the Bible a ton of times. And I was actually just thinking about that statement in the times of season. If it contradicts the Bible, Doctrine and Covenants or Book of Mormon, lay them out as an imposter. That's I think that's in the context of Joseph is not wanting any elders abroad to be preaching any mysteries, which yeah. included you know, plural marriage, you know, and or, or eternal um, marriage, even eternal marriage. Yeah. It, whether, whether it was plural, whether plural marriage was authentic or not, he didn't want it to be preached. Um, and so I would say, and I thought the statement was interesting in light of that Joseph did give a sermon on animal sacrifice, which, you know, you could yeah. argue predicted the book of Mormon. Well, he said, he said the reason he preached from the Bible, and this is in words of Joseph Smith, you can look it up. He says the reason he preached from the Bible is because people would get upset if he preached from something else. He had to frame everything in the Bible because people meat, would, would. I can't remember the. You remember the phrasing? Milk, milk before meat. He was really he was trying to build on their common understanding in order to introduce them to new things. By the way, Jacob, your idea of the animal sacrifice. He didn't contradict the Book of Mormon. What he said was animal sacrifice came from Adam. That it pre that it predated that revelation is very important, or that sermon is very important. It predated Moses. And he said anything that predated Moses and goes back to Adam will come back at the end. Animal sacrifice being one of those rituals, one of those things. And the law of Moses was done away in Christ, but not animal sacrifice. And Joseph made that clear. Yeah, I agree with that. I just don't think it's stated in the Book of Mormon that way. Yeah. The Book, the book, the book of Mormon does not, does not contradict it, though, whatsoever. All right, you know, that's debatable. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I mean, this, this is all debatable. Subject. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, in interest of time, we're at about two. We're at about two hours, just a little bit over. Like, do you, yeah. are you guys good to keep going on, on Q&A or would you guys like to uh, edit here and then look at the comments in the coming Mark, weeks? Mark's got to go to bed. He's a lawyer. I mean, he's got he's got a busy schedule tomorrow. I mean, no, we can we can wrap no, it up. Here. I got kids. Like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I might, I might need to duck out. I got little kids that are having a rough time right now. No worries. Yeah. Hey, do you, um, if you want to duck out, Mark? That's great. Uh, Jacob, can you stay for the affirmative? I time? can stay. Okay. And we'll try to run through these pretty quick. So, okay. Mark, if you have to duck out at any point, thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank you, guys. Hey, I didn't mention it earlier, thanks, but thanks, Mark. everybody. Thanks, yeah. Mark. Hey, thanks yeah. for joining great, us. Great yeah. contribution, Mark. Yeah. That, was, that was fantastic. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank, thank you. Likewise. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, we'll keep going and we'll try to do a little bit quicker through some of these. Um, I think this is back to the, the the thing about it taking 45 minutes for uh, Kingsbury to write the copy. So uh, this is probably for either team. I don't know. So maybe it took two hours. Are we holding him to 60 minutes as a hard, fast rule? That's from Terminus Electron. That's what he says. He, sa he, says, it over, he says it over and over again. He says it several times. He says, ah, 30 minutes, maybe 45. I don't know, but it, was, this was, it wasn't this very was long. This was later on, though, Temple Lot yeah. era, yeah. Yeah. give or take. 
so this is decades after the fact and his memories obviously you know sure. if he yeah. we know he wrote the document we know he wrote an eight-page document on plural marriage and so if he thinks that only took him 30 minutes or an hour then you know that's just his memory being faulty in my opinion so yeah. so here's a plausible scenario this is plausible i think i think it's very plausible that clayton did write down a revelation on sealing that Hiram and Joseph had him write a revelation on sealing, but it had nothing to do with polygamy and that Newell Whitney asked permission to copy that down. And Kingsbury copied that revelation down, which was indeed the revelation that he had in winter quarters in 1847, 1848, when Whitehead says he saw it. I think that's just as plausible, that being two to three pages, that being much shorter, that having nothing to do with plural marriage, that lines up with part of Clayton's and part of Kingsbury's testimony. Don't know if it's entirely true, but it's just as plausible to me as the other stories, because there are so many holes and inconsistencies when you look at them all together. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to another question. Um, some of these are just sort of kind of questions. So EJS says, you read William Clayton's journal at face value, but not Joseph Smith's. This is probably for, for you guys, Jacob, the affirmative, I'm guessing. <laughs> Uh, I do read Joseph Smith's journal at face value. I think that there is a strong thing where he doesn't want anyone preaching or teaching the doctrine of plural marriage. I accept that at face value. I just think that, and I, 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 I don't see the history of the church version of that as contradicting as more. I personally view it as harmonizing. Joseph says, according to, um, you know, the history of the church version, he says, for I am the only one who holds the keys of this power. And I've also said that a man is not to have more than one wife unless the Lord commands him otherwise. And that's obviously written in the 1850s. And you can debate whether that's Joseph Smith's intent or whether that's the 1850s people's intent. But I would say accept at face value. I would actually like to say I, I, I like Jeremy's comment about the, the problem with the July 12th 1843 entry in Joseph Smith's journal, where it looks like he's going back and filling things retrospectively. William, um, not Willard, Willard, Willard Richards is the only scribe for that end period of Joseph's journal. And I would say that with that, what's interesting is there's a letter from Willard Richards to Brigham Young. He's writing journal letters to him during the summer of 1843. And there's a letter to him to Brigham Young in August of 1843 saying there's a new revelation. I haven't seen it. I have not seen it yet. And so you know, he could have written that journal entry retrospectively after learning about it for Joseph. So I don't know. All right. So there was a lot of talk about like late accounts and not having like documentation or, or whatever for C section 132. I'm going to throw this one out because this is from Terminus as well. We don't have two thirds of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, only the printer's manuscript. Likewise, we only have a Kingsbury copy of the DNC. Do you guys discount the Book of Mormon as well? I'm guessing he's saying because because there's not contemporaneous records for some of it there's some there's some possibility that there's errors um there's possibility that there's errors but we do have corroboration from what was printed at the time so we so we can track it back to what they printed at the time that joseph smith reviewed and then went back and looked at so and he was making changes to it up to the point of his death basically um so there is there is contemporary it's very different there is actual contemporaneous corroboration of Book of Mormon. There's not for DNC 132. I want to address the journal question as well. Whitehead says, and I, I vehemently disagree that Whitehead's an unreliable source and that he's a perjurer. Go read his testimony. Go read his, the other statements of what people quoted him saying and then make your, make your judgment. But Whitehead says that he, Whitehead, kept Joseph's personal journals, his personal letters, 
that that's what Clayton used to do. But Clayton wasn't fired. He was let go of that position and given another because Joseph wanted someone else as his personal secretary. Interestingly enough, we don't have those journals. We don't have the letters that Whitehead penned or that Whitehead was in charge of. I think we got to call for a, a Whitehead Papers project and see if, see if the church would release whatever they have, if anything, from James Whitehead, because I think that would be fascinating. Richards, on the other hand, was the historian. And you ought to look, there's over seven, almost 700 blank spaces, blank lines and blank pages throughout the journals. Who records a journal that way? Whoever does that? That is really strange. And I think throws into question whether the what we call the Joseph Smith journals are actually journals. Number one, they're written in the third person. They're not Joseph's journals. They're a travel log by Willard Richards. And number two, whether they're actually contemporaneous. I believe it's very possible that Willard Richards used that just like Clayton did. Clayton would copy the Nauvoo Mansion minutes and he copied them into a second book, book two. And he, would, he was ordered by Heber Kimball to leave spaces so that he could go back and revise it and add things to it. He did the same thing with Heber Kimball's personal journals. He copied his journals over and left many pages blank so that there could be additions added later. And so there's this odd, strange way of copying down journals that to me, ought to be forensically analyzed and, and we ought to have better questions um, uh, given to uh, answers for. Okay, should we talk about Emma? Um, for both, this is for both sides, from Fancy Nancy. Thanks, Fancy. Your feelings on Emma, was she a liar or an elect lady? Who wants to go first? How about affirmative? Uh, my feelings on Emma is that, you know, she obviously was called to be an elect lady to expound the scriptures and do a ton of other things that's listed in that section of the DNC. And she does some of those things. Um, the question is whether or not she remained an elect lady in the eyes of the Lord. A lot of people see that as like she is unconditionally an elect lady and you can't condemn her later on for anything. She couldn't have done anything wrong later on. And if you accept DNC 132 as an authentic revelation of the Lord, clearly she was having issues. And if you accept the William Clayton journals as authentic, clearly there are marital issues between Joseph and Emma privately in Nauvoo if the William Clayton journals are authentic documents. And so that's my feelings on Emma. But I do want to add one quote. Is Bendri the, the statement of Joseph saying that he would go to hell for Emma. I would admit that I think Brigham Young takes that out of context. And that you know, Benjamin F. Johnson alleged that you know Joseph, even with other you know having younger, more brilliant wives in the Nauvoo mansion, that Emma was always the queen of his heart, and he said that he loved her, he loved his children, and he said, "How would I not? You know, look at these children. How how would I not be willing to go to hell for such a woman who gave me these children?" So, uh, Leo, you want to? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. There, it is amazing to like these um, kind of <laughs> these two images we have of Emma being presented. One is that she was, I mean, just totally unpredictable, violent even, um, that she would hurt, like tried to kill Joseph a couple times through poisoning. Brigham Young called her, I think, the damnedest liar that ever walked the earth or something along those lines. It's not too far from that. He called her um, a devil. Yeah, I mean, it's like night and day. But, but then you go read what people who lived with the Smiths said about Emma and Joseph. Um, it's a very different story. It's, you know what? No, they actually really loved each other. Like we, we were in the same house and no, we never heard them like fighting and yelling or stories of poisonings or stuff like that. Um, Joseph Smith, the third, he was 11, I think when his dad was killed. And he's like, no, he's like, that was not the family life I grew up in. I mean, maybe they were good at concealing it from the kids, but um, that'd be a lot harder to do. I think in that era versus today, but 
Um, then you, you also read their any kind of correspondence between the two. They really cared about each other. There, there was not this like underlying tension anywhere that you can perceive. And you know, this we talked about this last debate, but this letter um, about having the Whitney's come see Joseph in hiding. The whole context around that is Emma came to warn him because she was worried about him. She was scared for his safety. And so she risked her own safety to go warn him to make sure he moved to a new location. That's not the story of a woman who wants to kill her husband or poison him. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I personally, I find her way more credible than I do, you know, people on the other side. And look how she ends her life. I mean, she, she marries a drunk or a man who becomes a drunk and cheats on her has a baby with another woman. And what does she do? She takes that girl, that baby, and raises it as her own. And according to her, to, to Joseph's mother, that Emma had suffered more than just, than any other woman she'd ever met. And she called, I'm paraphrasing, she calls Emma one of the noblest women that ever lived. I think it's absolutely atrocious what people said, have said about her. And I think um, that when we do that, I think speaking ill, look, I'm a believer. I think speaking ill of the Lord's anointed is, is, a, is really, a, it's a thing that we ought to be careful of. And I think that Emma was also one of the Lord's anointed. Okay, cool. Um, let's keep taking some. Jessica Long wants to know, why were polyandrous marriages a thing? We didn't talk much about polyandry, especially people like Mary Rollins Leitner. Why would she be sealed to Joseph for eternity, married to Adam for time? Why would she need to be married to Brig? Yeah, that's a good question with the polyandrous sealings because when you look at the you know the 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 testimony about the sealings that happen in Nauvoo, they say that initially Joseph is going is being sealed to women who mostly have other husbands, and then later on it's kind of sh there's a shift later on and. It, from 1841 to 1842, where it starts to be single women being sealed. And so a lot of these polyandrous women say that they were, that Joseph told them that they were his before they came here, that they were his wife in, uh, you know, either the pre-existence or, pre, you know, previous mortality, however you want to interpret that comment. And so that's the explanation a lot of them gave. Um, I It was either Mary Rollins Leitner or uh, um, Zena Huntington said, you know, said that, you know, the reason she was sealed to Joseph was principles the modern leaders of the church don't understand. And so I, you know, that's, I thought that was an interesting comment, I think in the Temple Lot case in the 1890s. So. Okay. Awesome. Here's one for the negative team. Cochranet connection. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? It was mentioned a little bit earlier. Who wants to take that? If there is a Cochranet connection. To well, there's, there's no, okay. There's no, there's no direct evidence that, that Joseph got anything from the Cochranites, that Brigham got anything from the Cochranites. What there is, is there is circumstantial, um, uh, there's, there's a circumstantial connection. We have a mission in 1832 with, I believe, uh, Samuel Smith and Orson, Orson Hyde, Orson Pratt, which one? I think it's Orson Hyde, um, where they spend time amongst, amongst the Cochranites. They write extensively about it. They talk about how strange the practices are and, um, and they start making converts. Then we have, then we have conferences that happen 1834, 1835, 1836. Brigham Young attends one of those. By the way, he seems there's a strange anomaly in the record where he wants to go to one of the conferences alone, and he somehow gets approval, which is a strange thing. You're not supposed to go alone. You're supposed to go two by two. But it ends up that 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 uh, he ends up marrying a woman from that area, 
There's no direct proof that she's a member of the Cochranites, but it, it, it's very interesting that she's very open to free love. She's married to another man, and she uh, falls in love with Brigham Young. And like I said, the judge determined that Brigham and she were committing adultery. And so the Cochranites did a lot of strange stuff. It was uh, spiritual wifery, wife swapping, seemed to be like there's uh, orgiastic kind of stuff. Um, so it's its own brand. And there's a whole bunch of different sects in that time that are practicing free love or different types of spiritual uh, uh, spiritual wifery or strange sexual practices. Is it, a, is it direct evidence to, to Brigham Young's uh, plural wifery? We don't know. But the fact that he's there, the fact that he marries a woman from that area who also <clears throat> seems to be really open to having multiple husbands at the same time um, and, and going off on her husband and calling out a righteous thing. Uh, it's an interesting connection, but it's not necessarily a, uh, there's no smoking gun there. Okay. Awesome. Let's switch it up. Um, EJS wants to know, how do you explain the original section 101? I'm guessing that's the, um, what, the, the article on marriage, right? <laughs> Jacob, do you want to take a stab? I mean, I I think that's for the affirmative. So with that section, it's not a thus saith the Lord revelation, though there is a thus saith the Lord revelation in the DNC saying to cleave unto your wife and to none else. Um, and what William Law in his 1877, um, in his 1877 interview with the Salt Lake Tribune says that he directly points to Joseph. You know, what about this in the DNC that says you should only have one wife? And Joseph said that was given to the church when it was, on being fed on in its infancy and being fed on milk now is the time for strong meat and that's what william law recalled that joseph smith told him as the explanation between 101 and you know contradicting being contradicted by polygamy in nauvoo awesome all right so here's one for negative we're trying to balance on these best we can why didn't joseph excommunicate willard richards for writing the happiness letter i guess this is speculation but you know any insights on the happiness letter I mean, so why didn't he excommunicate him for writing it? I don't know. Did he? I, you know, and I'll have to plead some ignorance. Did he know he wrote it at the time? It, it seems like this is something we don't even. Am I thinking of something different that we don't even have this letter? Is it extant? John, John Bennett publishes this. I don't know that we have the original. It's um, it, it says it's in Willard Richards' handwriting when they publish it. There's no oh, date. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Did Willard Richards say I wrote it? I mean, did he just say Joseph? I don't know. John Bennett's spending another lie. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know much about the details. So I mean, maybe Jacob right. or yeah. Jeremy. And we tell we, me we have the Martha Brotherton case, right? Where where <laughs> there's accusations and Joseph is defending Brigham Young at that point. And I think Joseph is wanting to defend the apostles at that point. I don't. I personally don't think Joseph knows the apostles are involved until very very late. And that's when we get the conversation with William Smith. That's when we get the conversation with William Marks. Um, what Emma, Emma says about the subject. And, I, and I, my, my feeling is if those accounts are true, which I think I find those Marks and Smith more credible than, than other sources, um, that Joseph has gotten through uh, Brigham Young. He's gotten through uh, John C. Bennett, Chauncey Higby, Robert Foster. He's gotten through Gustavius Hill. He's gotten through Hiram uh, Brown. He's gotten through all these people and all these women dealing with all this stuff. He's been, he's, he's sued Chauncey Higby in court. He's publishing all these things and excommunicating people. Finally, after <clears throat> coming out of hiding and then, and then putting himself up on, uh, uh, for reelection as president in, in light of being charged with polygamy, um, 
he then I think at the end of his life realizes, oh crap, I got to deal with now Brigham, and I got to deal with John Taylor, and I got to deal with Willard Richards. Okay, I'll do that after the Laws and Fosters are 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 dealt with with the expositor mess. That's the that's one narrative that's that that is in the history that I find at least more credible. Okay, I think this is for, I think this is for affirmative team, but I guess both teams can comment on it. If God raises up seed through polygamy, Jacob two verse thirty reference. Why did He command the opposite when raising a righteous branch in Lehi? So, so Orson Pratt takes Jacob two at face value. I know some people try to say Jacob two doesn't really condemn polygamy; it's condemning whoredoms, not polygamy. I don't, I don't buy that argument. I think it's condemning polygamy, especially what you have in Jacob three, where it says there was a commandment given through Lehi. And according to Orson Pratt's explanation of the journal discourses, he Orson Pratt's belief is the reason that that commandment against polygamy was given in the Book of Mormon was because they had too small of numbers for that for the system of polygamy to work among their population at that time. And so Orson Pratt's opinion was that it was a population problem that, you know, plural marriage would, if they were about equally righteous and wicked, that plural marriage would deny righteous men the, you know, the right to be married, if that makes sense. Except that it it didn't come back and except that Adam and Eve weren't given that commandment and neither neither were Noah and their posterity and it didn't come to them, nor did it come to um, any of the people after Noah so it doesn't really follow. What, what what do you think of Amulek's women referenced in the Book of Alma? Amulek's women? I don't think that's a reference to polygamy whatsoever. No. He said his kinsfolk. So it's like yeah, what's, what, more what than more than just of? his women. There's there's lots. Yeah, his friends are included in the list as well. That's not an answer. I just I'm just saying there's more to the list than okay. just women. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's it is interesting that um, Jacob too is it's kind of problematic for both teams because it's like on, on Jacob and Mark's side it's like oh man you're dealing with this kind of like harsh rebuke against polygamy but then there's that one little verse that you know Mark or Jeremy and I have to make sense of but for me I, I just have a really hard time thinking that this whole time in Jacob too God's like polygamy is really bad polygamy has you know it's huge problems for women and children. Um, and you know, you're not supposed to do this. People did this in the past and it was wrong. Then it's wrong now, right? That's kind of how it goes. And then supposedly there's this verse where it's like, but sometimes I don't care about that. God's like, sometimes I don't care about women and their feelings and I'll tell people to do it. Right. So for me, the only way I can really make sense of that is I say that one verse, we must be misinterpreting it because I just don't see how God can frame it the way he does as strongly as he does. And then be like, well, sometimes I'm not worried about it. Right. It, it depends on how you define seed. When Christ made a sacrifice for sin, he will see his seed. Well, is that because he's got 500 wives and he's seeing the seed of his 500 wives? No. The seed come about as a result of his atonement. Abraham, the people who accept the Abrahamic covenant are considered the seed of Abraham. And those who accept the words of the prophets are considered the seed the seed, it depends on how you define it. Are the seed a righteous branch, a righteous people, or are they the literal seed of the body? So it depends on how you define the word seed. So uh, would it be weird if I asked a question? I mean, there's some people that want to know, like, DNC 132, like, wasn't the first, like, talk of polygamy. There's the, there's the 1831 stuff. Jacob, do you mind if I just ask you, like, how would you address 
the pre-July 12th, 1843 stuff, namely, I think, like the, the Lamanite women, polygamy, uh, W.W. Phelps wrote a letter. You know, there's, there's that earlier chapter before the 1843 stuff. Any insights there for the people? That's a fascinating, uh, you know, you know, the, the source on that is, is obviously, you know, questionable because it's W.W. Phelps quoting this alleged revelation in July of 1831 to um, Laird to Brigham Young saying that there was this revelation about intermarriage with the Lamanites so they can become white and delightsome for that even now they're more righteous than Gentiles. And that he said that they didn't understand it as polygamy, but they later asked Joseph. And Joseph said it was. So the problem with that is we don't have an early source for that revelation. We just have W.W. Phelps, you know, and we don't know how he's got the text of that revelation in 1860 something when he's quoting it. Um, but we do have a contemporary allegation by an anti, by a disgruntled former Mormon at that time saying that there was a, a marriage with the Lamanites revelation at that time. So you know, um, I'm not sure what exactly you're asking about that. I'm just saying the source is questionable, but it is an interesting thing that W.W. Phelps alleges. And it's maybe it's possible that, that, that it's evidence of, of them having to deal with that subject early on. I mean, the whole reason for DNC 101 and, and Jacob's right. That's not a thus saith the Lord revelation. That was the, the uh, penned by, uh, I believe, Oliver Cowdery. However, but it was affirmed by Joseph Smith, both in the preface of the 1835 DNC and also later publications in the Times and Seasons, where they republished that revelation as something that Joseph affirmed as being the doctrine of the church. But <clears throat> that that was written in response to allegations of what they called the crimes of polygamy and fornication. So um, and, and I should note that Joseph Smith always conflated polygamy, spiritual wifery. Uh, plurality of wives with adultery, fornication, whoredoms, abominations in his public talks and his writings. Okay, cool. Uh, we are going to try to wind this down so everyone's not up till night. Terminus again, he's got some questions. Negative team, can you explain the testimonies of Leonard Sobey <clears throat> and Austin Cowles? They said Hiram taught DNC 132 to the High Council. They had no ties to Brigham Young or the Utah Church, no motive to protect Brigham. What would you say to that? Either uh, yeah, so yeah, Jacob and Mark do a good job of going through that. Um, so the first thing I would say, and then I'll let, the, let Jacob and uh, Jeremy say something if they want, but you have to wrestle with this question. Uh, you know, Bennett, Bennett wasn't aligned with Brigham Young either, right? And yet he's got quite a story to tell. Um, you've got what Francis Higby said. People are gunning for Joseph. They, they see this as the opportunity. Come up with a new story. It doesn't even have to be consistent. It doesn't have to be the same story. It just has to involve polygamy, okay? Um, William Law, according if you, if you believe Joseph and Hiram, they said... He was, do, he was doing this for money and power. He wanted to be the leader of the church. He wanted to take Joseph's spot. Um, they, they accused him of kind of doing it for financial gain. He had control of some very important businesses. I can't remember exactly. I want to say like a, a grist mill maybe and like a sawmill or something like that. And Joseph and Hiram in the Nauvoo City Council of Minutes, they're like, the guy abuses people. He takes advantage of the poor. He, he overcharges when he, um, when he sees an opportunity. And they frame it as this was an opportunity for William Law to get more money and more power. And maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but that is the story. Okay. Leonard Sobey and Austin Coles, 
you know, I don't know if they had some financial incentive. I don't know. We just don't know if it was something like this Francis Higby story where Francis is like, man, people made me a very serious offer. If, if someone was disposed to be dishonest, like they could have cashed in on this. All right. Um, also, this idea of conflating this, this, this idea of being sealed to someone who is a dead spouse and also married to someone who's living. Some people consider that polygamy. Some people consider that spiritual wifery. Okay, um, I think that the the verse in DNC 132 where it's talking about, you know, ten virgins, you, it says something about you can do this with ten virgins, right? I think I suspect what the original thing was because Hiram's concerned about that he's committing adultery. He's like, I'm married to someone in heaven, but I've got this other wife here. How's this not adultery? And I think the original revelation was probably saying, look, this could happen ten times. Your wife could die, and then you get married again. And then she could die again and you get married again 10 times in a row. And it's still not considered adultery because that's the law. All right. And that I think was very easily, you could shift just a few words on those verses and suddenly it's about polygamy instead of someone getting remarried after their spouse dies. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to end it here. Two and a half hours. We know it's a long debate. Thanks to everyone who participated. Jeremy, Jacob, Mark Tensmeyer, who got a little bit earlier, but he presented really well. Uh, and Leo, thanks again for being here and guys continue to ask questions in the comments. We'll do the best we can in the coming months or years to get you guys accurate answers best we can. But anyway, big thanks to all of you guys and uh, sure to subscribe to the channel. If you like church history, especially kind of the lesser known stuff we tried to explore and we want to give big thanks to everybody again. And a uh, reminder that if you're watching this and you haven't seen part one, part one is addressing the question of, did Joseph Smith actually participate in it? And it's more about, was he involved? Did he actually do the deed? Did he actually be with these women? Um, whereas tonight's was just about mostly the teaching aspect. So again, thank you so much. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, share it with your people. Join the conversation on Facebook, YouTube, or HemlockKnots.com, where you'll find show notes and source material for these subjects and much more.